Well, hello and welcome to episode number 302 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos back in my rightful seat this week, and that is the seat on the right-hand side of the studio. And, yeah, because uh, I'm in the captain's seat. Because here, Matt <laughs> is in the captain's seat. He's back this week after his uh, jolly uh, over to Heathrow you were in last week. I you? was indeed, yes, absolutely. I was having a marvellous time, thank you very much. Um, it, uh, uh, catching up with an old friend of the show, so mm. it was. Uh, you it had was fun. A, a, a fantastic time. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, it's. I'll tell you what. It's a. It's a new. I, I'm not. I, I mean, I think a lot of this is is down to my age. Uh, I don't think I could do it very often. This crew life. Malarkey, that's no, no. it's quite an experience. Uh, of course, uh, Armando, you've got to all all that to look forward to, really, haven't you? Really, it's just like, I, I, well, they broke me. I mean, him and him and his crew broke me. Oh, bless! It was. It, it didn't take a lot. I've got to be honest. So, joining us uh, this week from his uh, his five star hotel in the US is, of course, the guy wearing the three stripes this week, looking very dapper indeed. It's Armando. Hey guys, glad to actually make it to the show. I originally was not going to be here till a little bit later, if at all, in the show. But uh, like I was telling Matt and Carlos before the show, we had a maintenance cancellation and a, another crew came and took our airplane. So here I am oh. now sitting on reserve. Oh, I'm a bit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm a bit nervous here now. I'm not. I've just seen a, a comment in the chat room here from Auntie Liz. It says, "Oh, I have to comment on Matt's facial hair, though. Wow, is that is that." good it's know. grown a few millimeters since the it last has, show yes, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes absolutely i don't know just does auntie liz like it because that's the, know. Uh, that, that that's, that's the bench test if, if yeah auntie, well yeah if auntie liz doesn't like your beard yeah then, then it has to come has off to come there's off. no two ways about yeah. it oh yeah. no she likes send it your, oh does she oh yes send your feedback on matt's facial hair to <laughs> podcast <laughs> at plain talking oh please don't oh no don't make me laugh because that really does hurt <laughs> yes i should ex- i should i should very briefly explain poor carlos has i think it's safe to say you've been through the wars a bit this week aren't you yeah. mate? he's currently gargling salty water at the moment because he's had some problems with his teeth and to be one fair tooth. one tooth uh, and to be fair he is in quite a frightening about amount of pain that so pain. have you just taken tablets or are they beginning to wear off? I, I just just trying to work out at what point you will become completely incoherent during the show. No, I took two. <laughs> I took two tablets before I came over here today. Right. Okay, or so, tonight. So hopefully you'll be very loose and mm. so. Oh God, mm. God, help! God help us all, Honestly, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> for, for those of you who have ever had a molar taken removed from from your mouth, it is a hideous experience, especially when you have to go back to the dentist and two hours after having the tooth out. To have the blood pouring from your mouth. Oh, all right, okay. Stitches. People might be eating their tea. I know. I know. Certainly, the lovely Jenny in Rome will be cooking hers about now. <laughs> and Jonathan Warner, <laughs> if 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 I if I didn't have Matt sitting here now, I would say something very rude. Very rude. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, blah, blah, where are we? Um, I've lost my place now. Anyway, welcome to everyone who's joined us on the show this week. All the usual members in the YouTube chat room. So hello to you this evening. We've got, uh, oh, let's have a little rundown. We haven't had it for a while. Have we? Auntie Liz, hello to you, Liz. Chris Griggs is in the chat room. Uh, Neville Bounds is 
in the chat room. Who? Uh, Richard Adams is in the chat room. Uh, Jonathan Warner. Jenny in Rome. Hello to you, Jenny. Oh, Hope you're yeah. well. Who is about to sit down for her team. Oh, is she? Way, okay. So and you we, are an apology. We have got <laughs> we have got podcast royalty in the chat room in the uh, guise of Rick Bell. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, hello to you, Rick. Hope oh, you're and, well. and, and a, Sir, a Sir Al of Captain as well. I know. Oh, Captain Al's in yeah, the chat room. That's yeah, nice. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Busy yeah, old, busy leave him in the chat room. What, what, sorry? <laughs> hey. Behave. Don't make me laugh. <laughs> yeah. Everybody make him laugh, please. No. What I need is a chat room full of very amusing comments so that he literally is sort of, yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> Let's see if we can make him cry before the end of the show. That's, that's no, the answer. That would be great. <laughs> so is everyone all right before we start? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a good yeah, week? Absolutely. Yeah. What about you, Armando? Yeah, so I've been uh, out here in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth flying all the routes out here for the week. And uh, it's been fun, yeah, flying... You know, what, last week I was in the Rockies, and this week I'm in the plains of Texas. Oh, so, so. yeehaw. Pardon? Yeah, I just thought I'd try that. Medication's one. kicking in, everyone. Brace yourselves. So <laughs> we have got... <laughs> We've got lots to get through this week in the news. We've obviously also got some bits coming up this week. We've got the fourth part of the John Hutchinson Ooh, yes. interview. Mm. Uh, we're all about the Concorde, which is coming up. Uh, we've also got uh, another interview from the Dubai Air Show, which uh, is Nev Is that our talking. last one? It might be our last one. Could Nev. be the last one. I yeah. can't remember. Nev, Nev knows a lot. Yeah. But this one this week is uh, Nev's talking to the guys at Frequentis about uh, Digital Tower. Um, stuff so that's very, very cool. techy it's very yeah. techy mate you don't like, I like the sound of that yes, uh, yes we've also got some audio feedback this week which has been sent in from nick codling so yeah. that's coming up later on the show yeah he's well. talking about our 300 he is he? yeah which is, which is great uh right shall we uh, shall we get into it well without further ado let's uh armando are you ready we're going to start the show then as we do each week with a rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. ready to go let's go <laughs> So, kicking off this week's first news story, and it's a breaking news story that broke mm. just before me. Uh, in and fact, Matt. actually, it was shouted up the stairs by mother, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was actually. Uh, it was uh, kind of sh shouted up. Matt had to go down and see what the, what's going on. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I was I was worried something terrible had happened, but it was no. It's like she was scree screaming up the, chair, the stairs like Matt, Matt, Matt. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, so the news what or the news has has, has broken this evening. Apparently, Stansted. Uh, airport obviously wanted to have some kind of expansion thing going yeah. on, uh, and they've been told no. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, um, uh, uh, my, my understanding is that they've been they've they've been granted a a bit of a. Uh, see if you can bring the story up, actually, Carlos, because it's just trying to find uh, they 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 have. Here been, we go. Yeah. So this is on the BBC yeah. uh, .co.uk website, uh, and uh, Stansted Airport expansion rejected by Uttlesford Council. Uh, officers at Uttlesford Council District Council have been recommended uh, approval of proposals to increase the Essex Airport passenger cap to 43 million a year, but the council's special planning committee members rejected the scheme. Originally, the council approved the plan, but after the residents for Uttlesford Group took control from the Conservatives in May, the decision was referred back to the committee. Uh, it says here that Stansted currently handles 28 million passengers a year and already has permission to increase capacity uh, to 35 million. The airport had offered 
to invest £35 million in the local area, including uh, uh, doing transport improvements, soundproofing for homes on the flight path and homeowner relocation. Uh, and plans, it says here, for the £150 million arrivals terminal were put on hold last year. So it's safe to say stands that won't be increasing in size. I mean, I mean, how do we feel about all that? Because obviously, I mean, I, I don't know if I dare say this word out, out loud, but, you know, that those musings of a third runway at Heathrow, um, which sort of seemed to be a bit of a an, an issue, if you like. I mean, the thing is, is that whether people like it or not, you know, I mean, air travel itself is continuing to increase in popularity. I mean, the, you know, airport numbers are going through, going mm. up all the time. I mean, you know, at some point we're going to reach a point where there is no more capacity. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, certainly I, I reckon at Heathrow, we're probably not a million miles away from that, are we? You know. Yeah, no. I think that's interesting that they would block that. It's, I, I would figure of the London airport stance that is probably in the best position well, yeah. to expand. Because, mm. I mean, it's a much more rural location. In, I mean, I, I, I mean, we, we make a, a laugh and a joke about it, don't we? Because it is still London Stansted when, in fact, it isn't that close to London. But uh, it, it is, uh, you know, it, it is a major London hub um, with, you know, a, a, me a metric tons worth of green land around it you know i mean i, I think there, there is a reason why that airport is chosen as the location where if planes are in trouble oh, yeah, yeah. or if you know there's any military Hijack intervention or, yeah. or whatever i mean that is why the likes of trump and and that all land there is because of its location you know it, it just, yeah so m maybe you guys can explain to us here in the u.s a little bit more on how the councils work and sort of the influence between maybe not the influence but the relationship between the councils and the airport authorities or something like that. And I know it's just probably councils a little bit in this, Councils in the country, of, uh, not all, but most majority councils in, within the UK are very strong with how they can stop things from going ahead if they want to. If they don't want something to happen, they will stop it from happening. I mean, to a degree, happen. yes. Uh, but um, again, it's... I do wonder if it's um, because I suppose I mean these people are, are their job, if you like, is to directly represent the people who live in that area. So I, I guess they're doing their job because if the 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 feeling of the village or the town or whatever that they're representing uh, is is against the expansion of the airport, then I guess they are doing their their job but uh, i mean there are unusual circumstances where a government can override um you know a local council's decision so um you know there must be more, more about that rich <laughs> rick bell has just said in the chat room here i'm sure london can increase its capacity by expanding to london pittsburgh airport which is a good point uh <laughs> <laughs> but, oh uh, but yeah it's uh it's not good news for stansted either way uh you know and i do i do think um of, of all the airports in london as as we've already said it, it would seem to me to be a sensible place to expand as as it sort of you know i mean the, the... i think armando will agree with me because you you've um you've been here before been here before but i think they missed a trick when uh, rf bentwater shut down they should have uh, done something with that huge runway loads of infrastructure Taxiways. Oh, yeah. Abs absolutely. RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge are both in a great place. I mean, you're talking about the expansion going on in London South End, mm. uh, which also used to be an, an old uh, military base. I think, yeah, Woodbridge and Bentwaters would be a, a great location, especially as a launching point to 
you know, the Netherlands and, and Scandinavia. That, mm. Yeah, great location. Yeah. yeah. Ah, the runway's still there. Ben Walls as well. Lon so we could just call it London Lowestoft Airport. Oh, yeah. steady. Steady. It's the most, <laughs> it's the most easterly point. <laughs> London Bungie. <laughs> so, um, yeah, London Seeding. Moving yeah. on to the first story. Uh, first story, story proper, anyway. Proper yes, story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this one's on pointsky.com. United Airlines does not expect uh, Boeing 737 Max to fly this summer. Uh, we've all heard stories again this week with various issues, more cropping up with the uh, Max. But United Airlines have said this week, uh, two days ago, that they do not expect their 737 Maxes to fly again until at least the fall or autumn. Um, that new guidance came in its quarterly investors' call on Wednesday. That this time, we're assessing schedules, but we do not anticipate the Max flying this summer, they said. Uh, United currently has the jet scheduled to return on June the 4th, but that now seems increasingly unlikely given those comments and new guidance from Boeing this week. On Tuesday, the manufacturer began notifying suppliers and airline customers that the MAX would likely remain grounded until at least June or July this year. For United, the ongoing MAX grounding has been a drag on an otherwise successful and profitable year. The airline discussed earnings for both the fourth quarter and full year 2019 on Wednesday's call, noting that the, they, uh, it flew uh, more revenue passengers in 2019, uh, 2019 than any other year in the company's history. But even the growth has been tempered by the MAX. The best-selling Boeing narrowbody has been grounded since March 2019. Oh, blimey, March 2019. That'll be a year mm -hmm. in yeah. March this year. Not far away. Following the two accidents. Um, it says here that United has a relatively small number of MAXs in its fleet, but executives said on the call that the airline's inability to utilize the aircraft has slowed its strategy of its growing in its mid-continent hubs in Chicago, Denver, and Houston. It's safe to say then this is going to drag out for a little bit longer. So we're going to this aircraft is going to be, it'll be a if it starts flying again in July, that'll be a year, nearly a year and a half. Yeah. Well, getting on for a, you know, getting on for nearly a year and a half. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what and even when they do say that uh, when they do, you know, give the go ahead that um, these aircraft can return to flying again, you know, it's not going to be just a flick of a switch, start up. Start flying. Well, no, I mean, presumably they have, have to, to be, in, given, yeah. given how much time they've spent on the ground, mm. I mean, they're all yeah. going to require thorough inspection. Cobwebs, surely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At least put the cleaners through. I mean, they will need some. <laughs> yeah. Any absolutely. thoughts, Armando? No, I mean, there's not much to say. We, you know, we've talked about it enough mm. where Boeing has just taken a massive hit, but they also can't afford for this to fail. So I, I'm sure they're going to take every precaution to make sure this is the safest airplane out there but you know like we said a bunch of times in in the year 2024 we will just look back on that one year where the max was grounded mm. yeah, yeah absolutely so moving on to the next story and matt um for, for two people here who don't smoke this is a, a worrying one yes it did well i think I, I don't think any of us <laughs> smoke to be fair but this is uh, this is on the independent now if i recall because we've got a little group chat that goes between us you you sent us this story didn't you during during uh, during the week mm. here and uh, this is typical I love um, the headline. Yeah, I love the I headline. Pass <laughs> I will play the video, but obviously I can't do that until I finish reading it. But anyway, passengers scream on Ryanair flight. This is on the independent. What do they do? Uh, dependent, independent. UK. Yeah. Apparently, uh, passengers scream on Ryanair flight to Stansted as uh, cabin suddenly fills with smoke. Terrified passengers can be heard screaming and crying in the video footage of the moment thick smoke poured into the cabin of a Ryanair plane mid-flight. Smoke began to flood uh, the packed cabin just moments 
after the Boeing 737-800 took off. Well, at least they got the right aeroplane. That's a start for them. Uh, took off from the Romanian capital of Bucharest, climbing thousands of feet into the air. A woman can be heard crying in panic in footage filmed on board aircraft, while a man can be seen grappling with an overhead compartment in an apparent attempt to release an oxygen mask. Uh, none of the other overhead compartments appear to be open. Uh, the, the flight to London Stansted was grounded just minutes into the journey after the pilot declared an emergency and returned back to Oppenheim Airport. According to Ryanair, it is believed the smoke may have been caused by de-icing fluid entering the air conditioning system. Uh, the flight was reportedly originally scheduled for 6.40am but had already been delayed because of an issue with the first plane. The 169 passengers and four crew members then boarded a replacement plane which took off around about four hours later but returned to the airport after filling with smoke. A third plane was then prepared, however some passengers reportedly refused to travel with the airline because of their experience. A spokeswoman told Mail Online the replacement aircraft had been de-iced before it set off for London. An investigation into the cause of the smoke is still ongoing. So, shall we? I mean, I'm not. Part of me doesn't want to play this video because I'm a bit worried that we're. I, lo I love the video. I love this video for for two reasons. The first reason is because. The video, obviously, the plane's filled with smoke. It is quite smoky. To be fair, it yeah. is fairly smoky. But um, you'd, surely you'd be able to tell by the smell. So, I mean, if it got like... If it was de-icing fluid, de -icing sure fluid would, or whatever, yeah. you know, presumably it would have a... a sort of I, I just love the, the fact that there's about three or four people who, who just... Oh, it's the plane's filling with smoke. Quick, phone's out. Let's film the smoke-filled yeah, aircraft. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, so we'll, let, well, let's get this a quick play and see what we think of it all. <laughs> Buffering, buffering. Uh, well, never mind. So close. Oh, there we go. And then we've got some guy ripping open the overhead uh, compartment to pull the uh, masks out, which is quite good. I thought that was quite interesting. Right. Okay. Because technically, if, if the if the proverbial had hit the fan, the the flight deck would obviously release those. Yeah, absolutely. If there was actually something wrong for the oxygen. I just, to be as you say, I just love how everybody immediately got their phones out. The, the, the most, the most dominating feature of that entire is phones. Was not not anybody <laughs> like you got like a handful of people who were who were sort of clearly, to be fair, distressed about what was going on. You know, I, I guess you can understand that if you don't know a great deal about what's occurring. But I'd like to think Captain Al has said something good in the chat room. Yeah. actually. Captain Al said that de-icing fluid is very similar to theatrical smoke. Ah, right, which would give you a very dense fog, essentially. Mm. I mean, that is its job. Um, uh, Richard Adams yeah. has made a good point, actually. Richard Adams says that in-flight barbecues will never catch on. <laughs> oh, I see what he did there. Right, uh, yes. Anyway, for a bit of seriousness now, please, yep. Armando. Armando. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I really can't blame the passengers on this one. If even, even any of us in our podcast community, if you're sitting in the back of the cabin, you see this, the airplane start filling up with smoke. I don't know that I would reach up with my pen and try to get my own oxygen mask down because no, 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 it's, no. it's not going to work. But no, until they turn um, on, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I would still be concerned. I don't know that I would reach my phone either. I would start probably looking for ed exits or mm. something like that. But yeah, it's for, you know, we have to remember there are a lot of people out there that don't fly regularly or many, many people that are, it's their first time flying. You, you see something like that and it's, you're, you're going to get a little bit nervous. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Uh, that's a fair point. I, I, I get, I, and I guess the the reaching for the phone thing is, is is essentially the modern day phenomenon that is human human nature these days, isn't it? I mean, everybody's hoping that they can record something they can flog to the papers, aren't they? And and let's be yeah. honest, it, it's worked for these guys here. I mean, mm. the Independent has published it, and I dare say that video appeared on virtually every tabloid over the last sort of few days. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just re- just recently, there was a plane crash in uh, Alabama or Mississippi, where a sportscaster was uh, tragically killed along with some some other folks. Mm. And there, somebody stopped and was recording, and all you could see was just people with their phones out recording the plane on fire instead of anybody helping. And it was the same thing with the Dale Earnhardt Jr. crash. You could see people stopping on the highway, pulling out their phones when there are people still getting out of the airplane that would maybe require some assistance, but everybody was talking. Yeah. So, yeah, I know it's, it's a, yeah, I mean, we're all, we're all for, you know, I'm the first one to reach my phone and try and get something, you know, something a bit unusual is going Hey, but I'd like to think in that scenario, the first thing that I would do is go and make sure everybody was all right first, mm-hmm. or, you know, if somebody needed some help, but then, Oh, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a funny old world we live in, isn't it? So, Armando, the next story for you is um, regarding some uh, some hardness on an aircraft. I beg your pardon? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a funny way to put it. Yes. <laughs> from from our, we'll just call that a lexicon difference yes, between the US yes. and the UK. <laughs> so, from Flight Global, we have British Airways expecting to put a four-week-old Airbus A350-1000 back into service on January 23rd after precautionary checks following a hard landing at Tel Aviv. The aircraft, Gulf X-Ray Whiskey Bravo Delta, had registered the abnormal landing as the aircraft touched down on runway 12 about 0530 on 20 January following the BA-163 service from London Heathrow. Israeli Ministry of Transport Chief Investigator Gad Regev said the authority has abstained all the uh, obtained all the clarifications and information which we required from the UK airline, but also declines to disclose any further details. Uh, Flight Global uh, understands that the aircraft underwent checks after the crew was alerted to the hard landing and the subsequent flight was returned. Um, I think the this was the second uh, hard landing that BA has had on their A350s in the last couple of weeks. Mm. So I don't know if there's a trend issue or something here, but maybe a training issue. I'm not, not entirely sure why. Now that the, the aircraft are equipped with all kinds of sensors and often it'll feel okay in the back. Maybe it'll feel a little bit hard, but even our small aircraft has uh, sensors that will report these kinds of things to maintenance when they do a computer download uh, afterwards. Okay. Yeah, a bit of a sort of a kind of a black box, but for recording yeah, you being recording naughty, you. Like, or, or, yeah. a naughty box, naughty yeah. box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, then I mean, not uh, again. I mean, we, we've had chats before, haven't we, with uh, the, the software that you have on your um, vehicles when you're tracking them. It tells you. Oh, yeah tells you details about how hard the vehicle is being driven, if it's been, you know, yeah. clutching and braking too hard and, and things like that. Our drivers I mean, are constantly doing that. Well, yeah, yeah absolutely. But, and, I, you know, an aircraft is going to be no different, isn't mm. it? You know, I mean, I, I, I remember driving a, a fairly brand new 
uh, coach, I think last year sometime. And of course, it was um, uh, the, when I when I finished the job and I, I got back, I was I, got, I was given a printout that said, uh, "Not a bad job, only only one uh, only one." minor cause for concern and it was because i'd gone around a corner slightly too sharp or whatever but it was a bit of a like wow okay i did not i did not know that was possible <laughs> you know it's sort all of like though they sort of you know it's got like g sensors and stuff telling you telling you if you're rolling the vehicle or anything like that i mean it's and an aircraft let's be honest these these things i mean the the, the data that they're gathering i dare say that that well again to be fair can help maintenance i mean so if it's had a very hard landing you're going to want to be checking out the landing gear quite well what everything attached to you checking out tires and well in this case like some that. interior Absolutely. panels had fell down apparently yeah. some ceiling panels oh, right. that fell okay. down inside the so they probably did so. feel it then yeah yeah okay well someone did yeah he, here in the u.s we even have these uh, sensors that you can plug into your onboard uh, diagnostic sensor for your insurance so they actually oh, will track your <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah yeah they'll they'll track your driving yep. habits and yep. the safer you are the lower your insurance yeah absolutely in fact uh, uh, one one of my friends who who came to um the 300th uh, his son has just started driving and that was one of the one of the conditions to to get um well I, I, well i won't say even affordable because it was still over a thousand pounds this insurance um but it was still significantly cheaper than other people by having said um black box plug in anyway that's got nothing to do with aviation uh, i think we should move on but this story has <laughs> this one uh, for anyone who's flown on norwegian uh on oh, yes. the local.dk uh one of those airlines i would love to fly over yeah absolutely so travelers who book the cheapest tickets will no longer have cabin uh, bags included in their fare, the company confirmed on the website this week. Um, Norwegian said that should customers wish to bring cabin bags with them, they will have to select the ticket above the most basic price level to all pay extra to add a cabin bag to the booking. The rule change is intended to make journeys more comfortable for everyone and ensure that flight departs on time, according to the airline. So it's not just to make more money then. Okay, so how the new rules apply to individual passengers depends on the date on which the tickets were purchased. If you purchase tickets on or after January the 23rd, 2020, you will have to pay extra to take a cabin bag on the flight. This is because the cheapest ticket, uh, the low fare ticket, does not include a cabin bag. You will, however, still be able to bring a small bag sized 30 by 20 by 38 centimeters and weighing no more than 10 kilos uh, with you in the cabin. This bag must be placed under the seat in front of you during the flight. If you uh, travel with low fare ticket, you will have to pay add extra or pay to add extra cabin baggage to your booking. That can be done up to four hours prior to departure. The other ticket types, low fare uh, plus and flex and premium and premium flex still include free cabin baggage weighing up to 10 kilos and the low flare, uh, low flare, low fare plus or 15 kilos with other type tickets. So hand luggage that exceeds the restrictions for your ticket type will be charged and placed in the aircraft's hold according to Norwegian's website. So for tickets purchased prior to January 23rd, 2020, the old cabin baggage rules do apply. So I think it's uh, safe to say that they've gone from sort of low, ultra low cost to kind of low cost creeping up now. But I mean, all the airlines now are charging for yeah, Most yeah, that's true. For a cabin bag. So that is true. If you buy a basic fare ticket, it is essentially a bus ticket. 
Well, you get what you pay for, don't you? You get what you pay for. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, just just going back slightly to the other story, I'm only reading because I found it really interesting. Uh, Captain Al was saying uh, it is possible to see the descent rate and G-loading on any Airbus landing above a certain value. The aircraft will automatically send the data to MCC. Yes. Which I presume is the maintenance crews, isn't it? Is that correct? Have I... Yeah, I believe yeah. it's uh, maintenance, maintenance control centre. That, Chris Griggs has just really... uh, actually said that he's, he's just noticed that the Norwegian sales started today. Uh, yes, actually, that was big. I wonder if that today. offsets the extra cost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, did, I think I heard it on the radio, actually. I was listening oh, right. to the radio today. And, they, uh, they, they do. They, I mean, they're fly, they, they have got some good reviews online, to be fair. Nor I mean, I haven't flown Norwegian. It'd be nice to speak to someone who has flown with Norwegian, either on short haul or long haul. But they um, apparently their, their crews are quite nice, you know, very pleasant, and uh, the service is good on board. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. We'll need someone on, anyone listening to the show who's uh, flown Norwegian, send us in some uh, audio feedback. Matt. Yeah. Where can they send their audio feedback to on WhatsApp? Oh, on WhatsApp. Oh, blimey. Now you're asking how long I has know. it been? To, uh, so it's plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six. So that's plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six. Or you can do it old school podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Or you can send it to us via Twitter. Uh, just you make sure that you tag in at plaintalkinguk. Um, uh, into the thing yeah. and uh, be nice to hear from that. someone who's flown with Norwegian yeah see absolutely. how good they are yeah, indeed, uh, yeah. next story Matt oh it's me for you it? sorry and, I, was, uh, I was busy pressing buttons I do this one is uh, this one is on the Reuters dot uh, com website and it's we're going back to the 737 but we're talking about uh, simulators now ah uh, ok right yes so it is uh, yeah as you say Reuters uh, and uh, the headline is Airlines Scour the World for Scarce eight, uh, 737 MAX Simulators. Apparently there's a shortage of them. Right. Uh, this uh, January 21st story corrects reference to Copa being the only Latin American airline with a 737 MAX simulator. It clarifies 245 uh, refers to 737 MAX pilots, not total pilots, in paragraph 20. Anyway, oh, so, okay. as you write, <laughs> onwards. Onwards. Uh, and onwards. Editorial note. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> airlines are scrambling to book time in 737 MAX training facilities as far afield as Fiji, Iceland and Panama, operators said after Boeing Co. recommended pilots be trained in one of the few simulators replicating the latest model. That means thousands of pilots from more than 54 airlines need to squeeze into about three dozen 737 MAX simulators around the world before they can fly the plane. Boeing is recommending that all 737 MAX pilots undergo training in a 737 MAX simulator prior to flying the aircraft in commercial service, the uh, company told Reuters on Tuesday evening. The first confirmation of its new policy. On the 7th of January, the company had recommended using a simulator but did not specify what type. Uh, the 737 MAX has been grounded since March 2019, as we mentioned earlier, after two... Uh, the estimated 34 737 MAX simulators in service uh, provide, produced separately by CAE Incorporated and Textron Inc.'s simulators and training division TRU are less than a quarter of the number of the older 737NG simulators certified by US and European regulators. I think what uh, I think that what a shortage of simulators will mean is the fleet of Maxes will start flying more slowly than the airline would like, um, said Gutner Orn, 
uh, who's the managing director of TRU Flight Training Iceland, a joint venture between Iceland Air and Textron Simulator and Training Division. In the beginning, it was said that the simulator training would not be needed. He said this changes everything completely. Uh, so, uh, the, the, as I said, they were saying that the TRU Flight Training Iceland uh, had more inquiries than usual from potential airline customers about the use of its 737 MAX simulator since Boeing's uh, January 7th announcement. Boeing said on Tuesday it did not expect to win approval for returning the 737 MAX to service until mid-year, longer than previous estimates in part uh, because regulators are working on new pilot training requirements. Many airlines did not order 737 MAX simulators assuming they could rely on the older 737NG simulators because the types were so similar. Uh, simulators can cost uh, circa $10 million uh, Ouch. to uh, any, or anything up to 20 million dollars each with the 737 max at the upper end uh, CAE said hourly rates for simulator training can cost $500 to $1000 per hour it said yeah, cheap uh, chips well absolutely high demand for the 737 max simulators had led uh, the Montreal company and its rival TRU to produce simulators for customers they have yet to line up customers are making increasing inquiries from all over the globe a TRU spokesman said uh, I mean I won't go on uh, but basically you get the gist there are enough simulators uh, for the work I mean I, I would argue perhaps that um, if if they know what they're going to be what scenarios they're going to be practicing in the simulators and stuff I mean how, how long does the sim training last before you have to do it again Armando uh, well it depends on the airline well, I think what the big issue right now is when the max was supposed to roll out and go into service it was going to be okay to use those NG simulators as the article said, and it was just sort of a difference is training course that you could do on a mobile device or in a classroom setting. But I think what they're looking forward to do now is to have max specific training now that they realize that the flight characteristics may be a little bit more different than expected. Um, so now you can't, simulators are hard to produce. They're um, incredibly complicated. They take a lot of maintenance. And you need a facility for it. So, um, yeah, I think, and Captain Al was talking about this too in the chat room where this this is now going to be the, maybe not the limitation, but a limitation about getting the MAX back into service is now everyone's going to have to go through MAX specific simulator yeah, and emergency yeah. procedures training. So it usually takes a couple, so I, I'm assuming that previously qualified 737 pilots and G pilots will probably spend a day or two, maybe three in the simulator. Um, but something that a lot of people don't know is simulator drop operate 24 hours. So if, um, if these airlines that did uh, were a little bit proactive, ordered their simulators, they have the potential to make a lot of money renting yeah, the simulators out. Other airlines. Yeah. Yeah. Now $1,500 an hour, you got a bunch of Southwest pilots that are, uh, going to Panama and Iceland yeah. and Fiji to sit in the simulator at two in the morning, um, yeah, and that, that's that's what's going to have to happen. Which which let be let's be honest is I mean I mean not being funny I mean you guys are are flying you know at any time it's whatever time is required so I mean it, you know flying at two a.m. in the morning is not an unusual thing for an airline pilot. Yeah, that's a 
that's not a thing to us. We have no idea what day it is, what time it is. Uh, none of it really matters. No, um, no. So it's not going to make any yeah, difference. To and you. So, it's not going to make any difference to you doing your training at, at three o'clock in the morning. Is is kind of where I'm going with that. Correct. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and I'll add uh, something that Al just put in the chat room is um, the NG sim cannot be used for the max. And then vice versa, the max sim cannot be used for right. okay. the NG. Yeah. So what? What I mean, forgi forgive to... me if it's this is the the engineer um, that uh, uh, this, this is the sort of the computer guy in me. I mean, why? Presumably, this is just a software alteration. As far as I mean, what what are the con and are there are there different controls in the max versus the NG? Is that is that the issue other than just actual software? Yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be more of a software issue and, and that you have to, in order to use a simulator and it be certified to, you know, for a type rating or differences training, it has to have the most realistic flight model loaded in, into it. And I, I don't know in, in that kind of uh, high-end complicated simulator, I don't know that it's as easy as pushing a button saying, okay, now we're going to load the yeah. NG flight characteristics or the max flight characteristics. Um, so yes, it is a software. I I'm sure the basis for the max simulators will be similar to the NG, especially since they're being produced by the same companies. But yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's really the limitation is that the computing behind the, the pilot input compared to the flight model is gonna be uh, just different enough that you're gonna require a different simulator. Mm. Very interesting. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I do love a good sim. Yeah, absolutely. Cast minds back to the two hundred. Now, if oh, anybody, yeah. if any operator wants to send Armando Carrion to either Fiji, Iceland, or Panama to go test out one of these sims, <laughs> I'd be more than happy to. Well, of course, yes, absolutely. You can contact yeah. him at Armando at PlaneTalkingUK.com. Yeah, yeah. So, Armando, next story. We're going over to Mexico, and this is good news for anyone who has a spare twenty-seven dollars and wants to buy a plane. That's right, $27. The Mexican president is taking the drastic step to get rid of his Boeing 787 private jet. Uh, he's had it up for sale for almost a year with no buyers. The president has floated the idea of holding a raffle to bequeath the plane to one lucky winner with tickets priced at just $27. So what do you do when you can't find a buyer for this kind of high-priced item? You raffle it. Uh, we've seen several iterations of this idea here in the U or there in the UK, as owners of large country homes give up on finding a lottery winner to buy their place and instead choose to raffle it off. So the president of Mexico has taken some inspiration from this, and uh, Bloomberg is reporting that President Andrés Manuel López Obrador is con contemplating holding a raffle to get rid of the presidential jet, which is a 787 Dreamliner. Uh, let's see, 500 pesos a piece. Uh, the Mexican public is uh, coming up with some pretty creative memes on, uh, you know, on this. <laughs> I love that uh, people are, are taking pictures of themselves and putting themselves in, inside of the airplane. <laughs> um, pretty cool. So there you go. Anybody in the, in the world that wants to, you know, try to, Take a chance and get a Dreamliner in the front you, yard. As you manage, Matt, if you brought this a ticket on a whim, you know you brought this 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 ticket raffle ticket for twenty seven dollars. 
didn't think you'd win, and then you won. Oh, Matt, uh, you've you've won this seven eight seven Dreamliner. I just wonder whether um, your <laughs> boss would let you keep that over at um, over at the uh, um, coach place. I mean, I mean, I mean, parking will be an issue. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's uh, there is quite a lot of space over over at Moor Business Park, but I don't know if there's. Uh, enough I mean, room. You, we have got I mean, a I'm runway sure, close, but I, I don't say, think it's I'm long sh- enough. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could have a chat with Beckles, I suppose, see what they say. That would have to be <laughs> an incredibly low fuel. Yeah, high f- low flaps. Uh, well, it get in all right. Whether it get out again yeah. is, a, is another matter, isn't it? But uh, have you got room for these, what- Monday? <laughs> Uh, well, what I was about to say is, I think if I if I had the winning ticket to a 787 Dreamliner, I would go to Mexico, take a bunch of pictures, and then say, "Hey, everybody, look at my Dreamliner." And then my next phone call would be to HiFly ah, and say, ah, "I'll yeah. sell it to you for the low low price of you know. forty five million." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and then we shall never hear from Armando again because yes. I'll be in Fiji, Iceland, or Panama. Right. Okay. What? What? what I, on on seven three seven. Part of me did think that he was gonna, <laughs> that you were going to start your own airline up, uh, Armando Armando Airlines AA. Right. Oh my gosh! I would never do that. It's a terrible business idea. <laughs> <laughs> Airlines don't make any money. Yeah. Armando Airways. That, that's right. got a good ring. Armando Airways. No, no, no. Carry yeah. on Airways. That's well, the... carry. Yeah, carry on Airways. Car- yeah. See, see what I did. Uh, carry on Airways. Luggage. Our luggage policy would be so complicated <laughs> if we had carry-on airways. Oh <laughs> God, there's the show title for this week. Right. Anyway, you don't think I'll remember that before <laughs> oh, the okay. before oh, I get to no, probably not. No. Silly. Yeah. So the next uh, story is on the aeromag.com website, and uh, this one is uh, Airbus to produce or to boost A321 production capacity in, in Toulouse, uh, and they're going to do this by binning off the A380 uh, production area at Toulouse. So by mid-2022, the current A380 Ligardier facility in Toulouse will accommodate the digitally enabled A321 line as a step to modernize the A320 production system in Toulouse. The new facilities will provide more flexibility for the A321 production while keeping the overall single-R industrial and capital in Toulouse flat. Uh, they said on the uh, statement that we're enjoying an unprecedented high demand for our winning A320 Neo family, and especially its A321L long or X or XLR long range and extra long range derivatives, said Michael Schulhorn, Airbus Chief Exec- Operating Officer. He said that in order to optimize the industrial flow, we have decided to increase our global A321 production capacity and flexibility, as well as to establish a next-generation final assembly line in Toulouse. Currently, the only European final assembly line to assemble A321s is at Airbus's Hamburg site. In addition, the A321 is also being assembled and delivered from Alabama, U.S., uh, Toulouse was selected for several reasons, over, uh, overall competitiveness, time to market, investment costs, available floor space and resources. It's safe to say this th- the 321 is becoming is becoming very popular, don't you agree, Armando? I mean, the 320 is obviously really, really popular, but the 321, I think, is um, starting to become quite popular with airlines wanting to maximize on uh, bums in seats. Yeah, and you guys saw that at the Dubai Air Show. I mean, the orders, the number of orders that came out for these Airbuses is is amazing. And if there's ever a time to capitalize for Airbus, it's it's right now. And of course, a lot of airlines are uh, in uh, probably thinking of using this aircraft for 
UK to the US trips. Right. A yeah. single aisle aircraft, yeah, rather than the, the wide bodies. So, yeah, good on Airbus. Well done. So, Matt, moving uh, closer to home for the next story on Flight Global. And uh, we're going to London South End oh, next, dear. Matt, right. aren't okay. we? Okay, here we go. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, sorry, oh, you'll forgive me. I I'm busy watching the uh, the 777X launch that's uh, literally about to, to, it was delayed. to happen. It's supposed so, to happen yes. yesterday. Yes, yeah, but mm. due to inclement weather, the uh, 777X is holding at the end of the runway. So uh, when that when it does start to move, I, w I will switch to it straight away. So apologies if I interrupt anyone. But anyway, as I say, we're on Flight Global, and the headline is landing ERJ ran over into conspicuous dropped tow bar at South End. So uh, UK investigators believe a landing Lo Logan Air Embraer ERJ145 ran over a tow bar left on a London South End airport runway because it did not have any markings to increase its visibility to inspectors. Uh, the tow bar had been inadvertently left attached to the nose wheel of a Cessna uh, P210N light uh, aircraft which had departed South End some 30 minutes earlier. Uh, as the Cessna took off um, uh, from runway 23, the tow bar fell off and landed on the runway surface. Two aircraft, a landing Piper PA-28 and a departing Britain-Norman Islander each uh, used the uh, runway in the time before the ERJ-145 conducted its approach and was cleared to land. The UK Air Accidents Investigation Branch also states that a runway inspection was conducted in the interval between the PA-28's arrival and the Islander taking off. When the ERJ touched down in daylight and good visibility, its captain saw... Um, an object on the right of the center line about eight to ten meters in front of the aircraft while the jet was still traveling at 105 to 110 knots Ooh. he applied slight left rudder as the object disappeared out of view says the inquiry he felt a small bump through the rudder pedals but was not sure if this was caused by the aircraft clipping the object or running over the center line uh, after the crew reported the sighting to air traffic control runway inspection personnel recovered the tow bar which was located about 350 meters from the runway 20 threshold uh, it had been run over by the ERJ the inquiry state Ooh. but the jet uh, so that's Golf Sierra uh, Alpha Juliet uh, Kilo was undamaged analysis of the event which occurred on the 7th of August last year could not determine whether the PA 28 or the Islander had passed the tow bar during their runway occupancy while the runway inspection was intended to check for wildlife so the inspection vehicles driver might have been focused on the sky rather than the runway surface but the inquiry points out that the tow bar was painted in dark colors rendering it inconspicuous against the runway surface uh, the tow bar might have been seen sooner if it had been had a reflective or other high visibility markings it added investigators also note that the Cessna pilot had been distracted en route to the airport by alarming road tra uh, by an alarming road traffic incident between his motorcycle and a cyclist uh, the inquiry suggests this incident preoccupied the pilot's mind during preparation for the flight and was probably behind his forgetting to remove the tow bar Hmm. Uh, the pilot also unintentionally left his bags behind at South End. So, Matt, I, I think uh, there's a case here. I think Armando, actually, you've um, obviously been flying GA aircraft, and you'll know as well <laughs> as me that when you're pulling an aircraft out of the hangar, you use a, a tow bar. Um, 
and I, I presume this is what they're on about, a kind of small tow hitch tow bar like what you'd use to hand pull an aircraft from a hangar. Yeah, it's probably not the first time that uh, a Cessna or a Piper or any general aviation aircraft has either taxied out with a tow bar <laughs> or uh, or dropped one. The uh, it Now, the article also states that the pilot inadvertently left his bags behind at South End, so this person must have been in a real hurry uh, to not check for his tow bar or that he had his bags. But, uh, yeah, it's it's surprisingly easy to do. There's nothing in the regulations that say tow bars have to be a certain color. Um, I mean, they come in all kinds of colors and everything like that. And it it uh, is actually easy. It's easy to taxi with it out. And unless the tow bar gets snagged on something, you're basically just pushing it along as as you taxi out and uh, there's quite a few pictures on the internet of aircraft taking off with a, with a tow bar a tow bar hanging straight down from the nose wheel so it's not the first time not the last time now mm-hmm. it's incredibly unfortunate that that the ERJ uh, ran over that could have certainly caused some damage especially oh, yeah. if it had yeah. you the know, air stick uh, on the in the chat room the air stick says as far as leaving tow bars attached that is quite common as you said Armando is it mm. I've, 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 yeah. seen hat, I've seen it happen. Weirdly, I'm surprised. I, I, I yeah. don't know why. Especially, the, especially the ones you use on the like the one fifties, one seven twos, because they are they're not huge. Um, you know, no, and they're pretty low to the ground too. Yeah. yeah. I I flew a glider. You know, I'll, I'll be honest. I flew a glider once, and I I forgot that the the wheel the wheel that cuffs onto the tail uh, for ground handling it it was on there. We took off. We got towed and the guy that I was flying with just said, man, it just feels a little bit different. And we just continued to fly. And when we got on the ground, we realized that uh, the glider equivalent of a tow bar was still attached. So wow. it's easy to do if you if you get either complacent or in a hurry. So, Armando, the next story is uh, one for you. And it's uh, I didn't realize, actually, that they were in trouble. But, yeah, they are. I also didn't realize this. So from simpleflying.com, Malaysia Airlines is currently being courted by five different airlines, Qatar, Air Asia, Melindo Air, China Southern, and Japan Airlines. Uh, KLM Air France was rumored to have made an offer for 49% of the airline, but has since denied these claims. So as a surprise to all of us, why is Malaysia Airlines in trouble? Um, It is an unlucky airline, uh, suffered two major tragedies that killed all passengers aboard, one aircraft lost across the Indian Ocean, and another one shot down in Ukraine. Uh, then, then its fleet of 25 737 MAX aircraft undelivered thanks to the well-publicized crisis. Facing additional competition from Middle Eastern carriers and regional rivals Singapore Airlines, who used to be part of Malaysia Airlines, Cathay Pacific Air Asia, the carrier has struggled to find a place in the in the 2020s. Uh, I know we've been in the 2020s for a long time. Uh, but apart from these issues, the airline is actually quite a good investment with a robust route network and a relatively modern fleet. Thus, it seems that the best action moving forward would be to find an airline partner to invest in the struggling airline and help lift it back to its old glory days. Um, the article goes on a little bit uh, to explain how each of those courting airlines uh, came you know uh, came to Malaysia Airlines with their with their respective deals so I'll go over to simple simpleflying.com 
um, check it out. You can look at all the numbers, all the business numbers. But yeah, I think that didn't help obviously with what happened with those guys with the two the two aircraft losses then. Um, but uh, um, I know uh, certainly doesn't help anybody, does it? No, no. I know uh, my cousin is actually flying back to Australia with Malaysia. Okay. From the UK, so yeah. So hopefully they'll they'll not go anywhere in the next few weeks anyway. No, until indeed. They go back. Uh, yes, as I say, we're 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 busy watching the feed from. Uh, I know I mentioned it a moment ago. We're busy watching the feed um, uh, live from Everett Everett Airport. Um, hey. is it Everett Airport. What's it called? Yep, separate. Everett, Everett Washington. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and yeah. we can confirm that the winged folding wing tips are folded. And yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, they're not folded. They are. <laughs> no, they are down and locked. They're, out, yeah. they're down and locked. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So we're, we're, as I say, if if uh, we're, we're keeping an eye on that, so with a bit like we might we might get to see that go out live. You never know. Well, there's, there's one of them things with with a thing going round on top of it next to it. Look. There's one of them things with a. Thing oh, it's one of those with. helicopter things. Yeah. Oh, I see. Right. I didn't know what you were doing there, Carlos. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll go back to the show. Come on. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was getting quite excited. Then. Yeah. Uh, where were we? Uh, next story. Yeah. This one is on the one mile at a time dot com website, and uh, the headline on here. Uh, well, for those of you who like your window shades, so United Airlines, Brian Coleman's favourite airline, <laughs> they will require passengers to open window shades as of the first uh, of February this year. United Airlines will instruct passengers to keep window shades open during taxi, takeoff, and landing. Doesn't sound like a policy will actually be enforced, which is to say the crews are being instructed to make any announcement, but it will, uh, but not to enforce that everyone is complying with their instructions. Um, even though it says here that they've flown millions of miles, they're constantly amazed by the beauty of flight, and I refuse, they say, the person writing the story, to miss a takeoff or landing. If I'm in a window seat, it's just so magical. And it always surprises him when he uh, is on an aircraft. I think it does for all of us when we're on aircraft. We've got a window seat. So it says here that uh, most non-US airlines already have a policy requiring passengers to keep window shades open during critical uh, phases of flight, which we know in this country. Mm. Uh, this is a security policy. The logic is that in the event of an evacuation, having a window shade open will give you better a, a sense of uh, where you're at and what conditions are like outside the aircraft. United Airlines will no longer require passengers to keep electronics unplugged. So as of 1st of February 2020, United Airlines will no longer require passengers to keep personal electronic devices unplugged during ah, taxi takeoff cool. and landing. Lots of airlines around the world have this uh, will, will have this requirement, and the logic is simple. In the event of an evacuation, you don't want people tripping over wires. Mm. Uh, but it seems United is abolishing that and will allow passengers to keep electronics plugged in. In many ways, these two policy updates seem odds uh, odds with each other. Uh, using conventional global airline safety standards, United is improving safety by requiring the window shades to be open, and they're reducing safety by allowing electronics to remain plugged in. Yeah, I see the point. Of course, the maybe one balances out the I other. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, the chances of either of these policies making a difference in the event of an emergency are fairly minimal. They'll be too busy worried about getting their camera, camera phones out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, Filming uh, in vertical yeah, video. Yeah, vertical video, which Nev loves so much. I know. Yeah. Uh, it says, as an aviation geek and someone who is rather neurotic about keeping electronics charged on planes, the writer of the story have clearly spent too much time on ex-US Airways A321s without power ports. And, uh, well, it's safe to say that 
for me personally, if I'm on a window seat and it's a daytime flight, uh, yes, I want to look out the window. Right. Okay. It's nice. It's gorgeous seeing the uh, the, yeah. the view from when you're up there. Personally. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, okay. Armando obviously has to keep his uh, I mean, windows. he's quite busy. I'd like to yeah, think he's, he's looking out of the window at all times. He, he like, he, obviously, <laughs> you have to keep your window shade open all the time on the uh, flight deck, Armando. No, I like the personal challenge of taking off and landing with the uh, <laughs> the sunshades. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, he's not. got the head-up display in front of Mike's oh, back. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, posh. The HUD. Yeah. Well, it is a posh jet. It is a posh jet, yeah. yeah. Well, posh, yeah. posh prop. Posh yeah, prop. A po- right, okay. Yeah. Uh, right, uh, okay, on to the next story. Oh, this is a, this is a nice story. I like this one. Yeah, um, right, okay. All right, I'll be the judge of that. Uh, it's uh, simpleflying.com is the website and uh, the headline is Virgin Atlantic's most senior Boeing 747 pilot retires. The Virgin Atlantic has said goodbye to its most senior Boeing 747 pilot. Mike Abunaila uh, has over 31 years of flying with the airline clocked up more than 24,500 hours on the 747 making him the most experienced pilot on the team. Could he, in fact, be the most experienced 747 pilot in the world? Uh, so it's an exceptional career is another headline. Uh, pilot Mike Abu Naylor arrived into London Gatwick on uh, Victor Sierra 28 last Saturday morning. Despite landing the Boeing 747 hundreds of times in his career, this was a very special landing for Mike. It was, in fact, his last as he retires from the Virgin Atlantic team after 31 years in service holding the position of most senior pilot at the airline is just one of the achievements of this remarkable man growing up in Iraq he began uh, training on the Boeing 747 for Iraq Airways in 1978 however shortly after qualifying Saddam Hussein's regime barred him from leaving the country relegating him to working at a desk job for a railway company uh, undeterred, Mike tried in vain to leave the country legally, but was blocked at every turn. Finally, he found freedom, being smuggled out of Iraq in a heavy lorry. He gained uh, Kuwait citizenship and returned to the UK to renew his licence, where he found his first UK-based flying job. Mike launched his career flying Boeing 747s for a startup airline called Highland Express, uh, flying between Presswick in Scotland and New Jersey. He had a happy five months at the airline, but sadly wound up before his first year was out and Mike was left looking for work once again. Having applied to a funny-sounding startup airline, Mike uh, was offered a permanent job in 1989. Almost simultaneously, the long-established and reputable carrier Air Europe also offered him work. After some debate, Mike plumped for the startup airline and that airline was Virgin Atlantic. Air Europe went bust in 1991. By 1990, Mike had been promoted to captain, the youngest on the Virgin fleet at just 34 years of age. A few years later, he converted to the 747-400, the first aircraft without a flight engineer, and the rest, as they say, 
is history. One of Mike's highlights was noted to be his involvement in delivering much-needed aid to Iraq after the Gulf War. The relief flight took place on the 2nd of May 2003 and delivered 60 tonnes of much-needed medical aid to his home nation. This was the first time he'd set foot in Iraq since his daring escape all those years ago. Uh, on to the final flight, and Mike took his very last flight for Virgin on the 16th of January. He departed Gatwick for Orlando, Florida, perfectly on time, and with a couple of other senior pilots for good company on the trip. On arrival in Orlando, Virgin Atlantic had laid on a reception for him at the crew hotel. After a good night's sleep, it was finally time to take the captain's chair for the very last time. As he touched down in London, he made his last announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to London Gatwick. And as you heard earlier on, after 31 years of flying for Virgin Atlantic and 46 years of flying, it's time to say goodbye. That was my last landing and my last flight with Virgin Atlantic. I am retiring at the age of 65. Aww. It was my pleasure to serve my beloved Virgin Atlantic and, of course, the many customers that have flown over the years. So for one last time, I would like to thank you for flying Virgin Atlantic and wish you all the very best. Thank you. A lovely nice? story. There's also yeah, on that, on that uh, story that Matt's just read on the website, there's a really nice video as well that's been put mm. together of, uh, of that flight as well. A um, bit of a kind of speeded up uh, video yeah. of uh, of his uh, final flight it's yeah, uh, really absolutely. well what a, what yeah. a career yeah, absolutely and incredible a career isn't it there's no two ways about mm. that i mean it's um imagine as well being the fo on that flight with him on that last oh flight. yeah how yeah. cool would that be yeah, yeah absolutely yeah yeah amazing stuff it's i wonder amazing whether uh, i wonder whether captain nick knows him I bet he does. I put yeah. money on him knowing, yeah. knowing him. Yeah. Ed, well, he'll certainly know Captain Nick. I mean, everybody yeah, knows everyone Captain knows Captain Nick. Well, I bet you they stayed out of each other's way since one was a Boeing captain, the other one was an Airbus captain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The arguments just wouldn't be worth it, would they? Yeah. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> no, good, good on him. Good on him. Yeah, absolutely. What a lovely story. So moving on to uh, the last story in the commercial segment this week. Amanda, what we got uh, for the last story? Oh, I would never steal one of these top 20 lists from you guys since you do it so great. But it is, in fact, a top 20 list, and it is the top 20 busiest airports in the world by cargo handled, which oh, is something we okay. haven't done in the past. Okay. So, Carlos, I'll actually defer to you and Matt pushing yeah. the buttons to run this. Okay. okay. Oh, 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 does that mean I've got to do the music now? You can do the music. And, oh, and right. Hang on. Let, let me do you want me and Armando so, to do sorry, the Let me, let me switch shouting. cameras. Here we go. There okay. was a, so it's a top 20, isn't it? Yeah. Top okay. 20. Yeah. I'll start okay. at 20 then. Oh, sorry. I was, I'm so busy watching this plane, hoping that it's going to take off while we're on the air. But anyway, uh, here we go. Right. So let's start the music. Nothing. Brilliant. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did you, Seamless. Did, did, did you miss it? Yeah, right. Have a quick cough and it'll be fine. Here we go. <clears throat> At number 20, it is Chicago O'Hare International Airport. In 19. In number 19 is Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. In 18. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> Gangzhou Bayun International Airport in um, China. Excellent. In 17. <laughs> number 17, one of six airports in London, London Heathrow. In 16. Oh, another one. <laughs> Doha, Doha Hamad International Airport in, uh, well, Doha. In 15. 
the airport that looks like a dragon. Number 15 is Beijing <laughs> Capital International Airport. In 14. Number 14, Miami International Airport. In 13. 2.1 million tons of cargo at LAX, Los Angeles International. Uh, in 12. 12, thank you. <laughs> at number 12, it's Singapore Changi Airport. In 11. I've been to this airport quite a few times. That's Frankfurt Airport. Ah, in 10. Number 10, it is Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Roll the roll there. Yeah, yeah. In 9. Number 9 is Taiwan International Airport. In 8. Number 8. Oh, I'd love to go here. This one is Tokyo Narita International Airport. In 7. Ah, the jewel of the southeast, Louisville, Kentucky. In 6. It is somewhere I've been quite a few times now in my life. It's Dubai International Airport. In five. Got a lot of friends that work for cargo carriers and they're always going through this airport. That's Ted Stevens, Anchorage International Airport. In four. Number four is Incheon International Airport in South Korea. In three. Number three, Shanghai Pudong International Airport. In two. Walking in Memphis at Memphis International Airport with four million us uh, four million three hundred thirty-six thousand seven hundred and fifty-two tons. And bully's special prize. That's right, number one with five million four hundred uh, or forty-nine thousand eight hundred and ninety-eight tons of cargo, Hong Kong International Airport. Very cool, very cool. I should just. That is I, a heck of a lot of cargo. I, I, I do feel I need to explain to to, to, to those those who listen uh, in America in the fact because because they'll have absolutely no idea of the TV program Bullseye from which that theme tune is stolen, uh, <laughs> and also me sitting there going in five. Ah, uh, the legend that is Tony Green. Oh. Look it up on YouTube, uh, guys it. and girls. It was a TV program made by Carlton Television called bullseye and it was the worst yet best game show in the entire world people who lived in birmingham in in a sort of 60 story high-rise flat would win a speedboat i mean it was the best program ever <laughs> anyway. well here in the u.s we would have not known that and we could have just claimed it as our plain talking uk special i know i know so we go cargo airports just for a change. We've done cargo airports this week for so the busiest. So the busiest being Hong Kong. I, I don't, I'm not surprised at that no, at all no, actually because no, no, I saw no. a documentary not so long ago on National Geographic about Hong Kong uh, international okay. airports. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, and uh, I should ju- I should just stress uh, there we are. It's still on the tar- tarmac waiting to go. Is it still there? It is still there. It's yes, gone so. tech. It, no, I don't know. It hasn't gone tech. The weather has gone tech. The we- in fact, the weather looks fine there. Well, it says due to inclement weather. The, the well, they've it said says that it on for the ages. Tech. The triple seven and the helicopter. Have you sure you've not runway. got that on repeat? Because the helicopter is still there with its engine running. But you know, I mean, they, they, you know, they, well, you they, know what? They're just doing their part for the environment. Quite absolutely, yes. They'll have, they'll have uh, Greta Thunberg there in moments, busy uh, beating, beating her <laughs> drum. Uh, but exactly. uh, yes, yeah, so no change uh, in no the change. states of the triple X first triple seven x yep so triple seven x triple seven x sorry 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 triple seven x coming up next is the fourth part of the interview with john hutchinson as took by captain nick and uh, obviously neville bands behind the camera so here it is so it sounds like your first job with mcalpine uh, was excellent but you were pretty much a one-man band yeah i was pretty much a one-man band uh, we did get a second pilot 
and then finally a third one and I became chief pilot of this great enterprise and um, it was it was fascinating varied flying but it was very hard work I mean in essence you're potentially on call sort of seven days a week um, they were very good employers and Kenneth McAlpine was my sort of ultimate boss who was a, a um, splendid man he was a, a Spitfire pilot, pilot at the tail end of the war oh wow yeah and uh, a, a very very fine gentleman who's still alive and very much alive and lives down in Lamberhurst has oh. um, vineyards Oh, lovely. He became one of the sort of first first uh, Brits to start up vineyards in this country. Um, anyway, I just basically knew that really what I wanted to get into the, with the airlines because I, I wanted to go long-haul flying. And suddenly the airlines started advertising. I applied to Qantas, BEA and BOAC. British European Airways and British Overseas Airways. Well, I'm I sorry, I thought it meant better on a camel. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> one of the interpretations. <laughs> sorry. Uh, and BEA pilots, by the way, in BOEC were always known as flat earthers because they never flew far enough to find out that the earth was round. <laughs> Since we're on this, oh, on this slightly it. facetious. Excellent. Theme. No, no. But I'm <laughs> going to take you back to McAlpine's for just for a moment. Oh, okay. I was Very dis well. dismayed to discover that you uh, uh, took up helicopter flying and nearly became a cropper in a chopper. Um, you must look back on choosing to fly those as one of your poorer decisions. I'd, you as a fixed-wing pilot will totally understand that helicopters <laughs> shouldn't be able to fly at all. Not either, like the bumblebee, <laughs> I'm sure. Just like the bumblebee, yeah. Um, not quite sure what happened. I was coming in to land uh, in this field, and suddenly the helicopter, was a Hilla 12B, started spinning around. And the famous Hutchinson inertial platform toppled. And I now became a passenger in this thing. And by the way, it only had a lap strap, no shoulder harness. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And finally what happened was it, it beat itself to death on the ground. <laughs> and it was jumping up and down like this. And I was being thrown around all over the place in the cockpit, unable to sort of zero in on anything. And its final death throw is to leap up, turn upside down, and crash down onto the main rotor. So that effectively killed it, which was good. <laughs> so I'm now hanging suspended by this lap strap upside down. <laughs> and I could smell petrol dripping out, so I thought, mm, it's time to, get, time to get out of here. So I released the lap strap and landed on my head. Um, and then sort of surveyed the scene. And there was a great big hole in the perspex bubble. And I climbed out of this hole, cutting the back of my hand on a jagged piece of perspex as I went out. And I went off about 200 yards away from the airplane in case it's all blew up or something. And sat there rather disconsolately in, the, in this field. 
and I noticed that there was a tractor coming up towards me. And I thought, ah, oh, help is at hand. And this tractor came up, and this good old boy driving the tractor said, uh, you're all right then, you're all right then. And I said, yeah, I think so. I just cut the back of my hand a bit, and I'm a bit shaken. He said, oh, good, he said. And he just went back to his tractor, went back to his field that he was ploughing, and he left me sitting there. I couldn't believe it. I thought he'd come to rescue me. <laughs> and um, and what happened was that one of the other helicopters from this outfit, it was born, it was, um, God, I can't remember the name. It was based at Bourne near Cambridge. can't remember the name of the company. And one of their heli other helicopters flew over and saw me sitting there and came in and picked me up. And I went in to see the boss of this helicopter company and said, terribly sorry, boss, I've written off your helicopter. And he looked at me, he said, oh, have you really? He said, well, that's good. He said, I've been trying to sell it for several years. <laughs> it had been used for crop dusting and I think it was all fairly rotten inside oh. with you know, sort of um, various chemicals and things that had been carried in it. I gather the shaft of the tail rotor broke. That yeah, was the start that's, of that's, your troubles. That's, that was the start of the troubles. That's what caused <laughs> me to spin around. Mm, yes. Yeah. Good old Newton. We, he, sometimes he's not our best friend. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I also remember you had a special trick for smuggling wine back from France. Very useful. Mixing it with smelly cheese, as I recall. Oh, yes, yes. Smelly cheese definitely puts the customs people off. <laughs> they reel away from it. <laughs> I must when remember it, when that. When it's ripened nicely. <laughs> in a rather hot baggage compartment. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, well, I love that. So let's take you under your life with a BOAC. Uh, it was on the 707 you started. Uh, my father always thought of it as a rather agricultural aircraft after... He flew the VC-10. Did, did you enjoy flying it? The 707 was not an airplane you could say was enjoyable to fly. No. It was clunky. Um, you know, you sent a message from the control column and eventually it would transmit itself to the aerons or whatever and something would happen. But um, no, it was, it was a sort of Ford motor car of the of the airline world, I suppose. Airline it it suffered a bit from Dutch roll, as I recall. It did. It had a definite tendency for Dutch rolling. Um, so you had to be watch out for that. Um, but the thing that was a sort of complete shock to me, and this had never occurred to me, was that the first thing I had to do was learn to become a navigator. I had to do a flight navigator's course and somewhere upstairs in my one of our bedrooms I've got a, a flight navigator's license long since expired. Excellent. I mean I talk to pilots today and they can't believe this. Do you, do you still have your sextant? No. <laughs> I do <laughs> could, not. Have, could you still do a star shot? I don't there? think I could. <laughs> I don't think I could. So you know the whole navigation of a 707 Back then, in 1966, was using periscopic sextants to take shots of the sun, the moon, the stars, 
you had to identify the right star. Um, otherwise, you'd make a horrible mess of the, all the calculations. You console. Um, oh, that was a Laran. tricky piece of kit, and, yeah. and that, um. and 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 bearings from ADF bearings. You know, these are all the sort of things that you were using, and the route that they used to use to train you to do this navigation was London to Bermuda. That's a small just, target in a very big ocean. Now just think about that, exactly so. Yeah. And if you miss Bermuda, you're kind of stuffed. <laughs> uh, it concentrated the mind monumentally, I can tell you. Mm. It really did. And it was really hard work. I mean, I've done a 30-minute astro air plot from Bermuda back to London, and you just don't stop. Really? The moment you, you, do, you do your your periscopic sightings, uh, you then use your sight reduction tables, get it all into a form you can plot as bearings on a chart, plot it all on the chart. That now becomes a position that you were at maybe, perhaps, um, six or seven minutes ago, and you then sort of project forward on the map, and then you're going through the whole routine all over again. Um, it's seriously hard work. And one of my nav instructors, by the way, with whom I flew a lot, was Norman Tebbit. Oh, wow. Later to become Lord Tebbit, mm, who yes. wrote the foreword for the book. Yes, and, and a fine foreword it was yes, to, as yes. well. And a very fine man. But he's quite a gentleman, I understand. He's a wonderful gentleman. Wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. And what was he like as a navigator? He seemed to be a very good navigation <laughs> constructor. He seemed to think I was doing all right, so <laughs> he's definitely a good instructor. Excellent. Well, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> anyway, so I can tell you that when I went on to the 747 eventually, mm. to find myself in an aeroplane with an inertial navigation system and not having to think about navigation any longer, was just the most enormous relief to me. I never, I have to say, I never enjoyed navigation at all. Not, not that formal navigation. The responsibility was, you know, quite considerable um, to keep that airplane on track. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Quite challenging. Yeah. Uh, those of us who've flown with triple inertials and dual uh, global positioning systems don't know how lucky no, we are. No, 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 <laughs> absolutely right. Excellent. Um, so you had a rather troubled start to your career with BOAC with the destruction of Whiskey Echo and then you subsequently <laughs> crashed Piper Aztec. Were you beginning to feel you were in the wrong job? <laughs> there was, I suppose, a sort of slight element of that. <laughs> It's quite funny, actually. I'd, uh, Whiskey Echo was, um, you know, pretty traumatic experience. Mm. Um, although it, it's 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 interesting. It wasn't traumatic while it was going on. Perhaps you could tell the story. It's only afterwards that it becomes traumatic and mm. shock sets in. Well, to, 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 in a very sort of brief terms. It was a 707 flight from London Heathrow to Zurich. In those days, all our Far Eastern flights used to go through a European destination before it went on any further. 
Oh. And the three European destinations are Frankfurt, Zurich, or Rome. Oh. And this was Zurich. And that airplane eventually was going to go on to Australia. There was a route check taking place. So the flight deck was pretty crowded. There was the captain, a senior first officer, a route check captain, flight engineer, and me sitting at the right at the back of the flight deck at the navigation station. It was a beautiful sunny day, gorgeous clear skies, beautiful spring day, perfect. And because we were only going to Zurich, we had a very light fuel load on board, and that's very significant. I mean, if it had been, say, a flight to Bermuda with a heavy fuel load on board, the whole story might have been very, very different. All I know is that here I am sitting at the navigation station, right at the back of the flight deck, and about 20 seconds after we'd got airborne, there was this big bang and a violent lurch. And I remember hearing the captain calling for a severe engine failure drill. In those days, there was a distinct severe engine failure drill as opposed to just doing a fire drill. Uh -huh. Subsequent to Whiskey Echo, BOAC changed that, and for a severe engine failure, you automatically did a fire drill. Okay. But in those days, there was a specific severe engine failure drill, which did not involve pulling the fire handles. So were there no fire indications at that point? I have no huh. recollection of a fire warning light or a fire bell. Not, hmm. not, a, not at all. My first appreciation that there was a fire was the route check captain sort of peering out of the peering out through the side window back at the left wing and he said something like oh bother the wing's on fire oh god <laughs> that must have come as a bit of a shock and to that you. came well it came <laughs> as a shock to all of us and at that point the captain ordered the fire drill to be done. And he was all set up, the captain, who was flying, to do a full circuit back on uh, two eight left as it was then. And the route check captain said, no, absolutely not. He said, you've got to get this airplane on the ground as soon as possible. He said, it'll never last, the wing will burn through and we'll end up crashing into the middle of London if you go around for a full circuit. And the captain flying was very reluctant to do this. But it was eventually arm-locked into landing on zero 05, which doesn't exist now. It's a taxiway. That's a cross runway. No, I've landed on 23 at Heathrow, yep. but not on 05, and you're right, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore, and it had no ILS. Mm, no, no instrument, no approach at all. Nothing at all. So here's the captain flying it. He's now been persuaded to land on 05 for mm. reasons I've just stated, and I have to say he did an absolutely superb piece of flying. 
Excellent. Judge the whole, th eyeball the whole thing down to a, an immaculate touchdown, which is an extremely difficult thing to do on a 707, right at the beginning of the runway, because it was a short runway. Mm. It was only about 6,000 feet long, I think. Mm. And he safely brought it to a halt on the runway. What we, of course, had not appreciated was that during this short flight, I mean, it literally lasted about three and a half minutes wow. from takeoff to touchdown. And in that three and a half minutes, the poor old senior first officer in the right-hand seat and the flight engineer were doing after takeoff checks, severe engine failure drills, fire drills, top of descent checks, field approach checks, landing checks. I mean, they were going like one-armed paper hangers. They would have been. They Absolutely. really were going balls out. Um, but what we hadn't appreciated was that this plume of flame coming from the wing during that short flight had been impacting on the tail and superheating the the tail fin area. Yeah. And of course, as soon as we stopped on the runway and there was no airflow to cool the tail down, the tail just went poof. Wow. And the whole fire worked its way up from the tail of the airplane forwards up the passenger cabin. Now we had about 120 passengers on board. There were only two exits that were usable. Everything on the left-hand side was just awash with burning fuel. The rear right-hand galley slide exit. The steward at the back there got out on that exit and went down, but then the fire got the got the slide and burnt it up. Okay. So that wasn't available. So the passengers all got out of that airplane, about 20 of them through the right hand over wing exit. Most of them ended up with broken legs or broken ankles because they had to jump off the wing onto the concrete. Mm. But, you know, they lived. And the other 100 went down the slide. And I tell the full story about this crash on cruise ships when I go lecturing. Mm. Because I think it's so important for people to be aware of the fact that cabin crew are not there to serve coffee and tea and meals and pamper you. They're there when it all goes horribly wrong to get you out. And if you've got a well-trained cabin crew, your chances of survival are hugely, hugely enhanced. And this cabin crew were fantastic. They imposed their authority on the passengers. I think the passengers were more frightened of the chief steward <laughs> than they were of the smoke. Excellent. Dense black smoke mm. and flames and explosions every now and then. A fuel tank would blow up or tire would explode and the airplane would lurch one way and then lurch another way. And I remember standing in the forward galley area. I didn't have to do a thing. I just watched all these people going off down the slide, one after the other. And eventually, I realized that it was just me and the captain standing there in this 
I don't know where the flight engineer had gone. I don't know where the senior first officer had gone or where the route check captain had gone, but they weren't there. They, there was just me and the captain. And we sort of shouted and yelled. And this dense black smoke, by the way, you can't see more than about that far in front of you. And highly toxic. And highly toxic. And, and the captain said to me, he said, look, he said, I think everybody's off. And as far as we could tell, everybody was off. And we retreated back onto the flight deck. And I remember shutting the door behind me to stop the smoke getting up into the... <laughs> and then the captain went out over the... Uh, out of this side window on the right-hand side and went down the rope. And I, I followed him. In fact, I was the last person off the aeroplane. And I can remember going down this sort of strop with smoke pouring out of my fingers. So my one and only injury was was severe rope burns from going down this strop at high speed. And it was all, I was all quite calm at this stage. And what then happened was we went to the medical center and I can remember Alan Sibold, who was the, um, the AOC doctor. He said, where do you live? And I said, oh, I live up um, near Stevenage. He said, oh, I live up in that part of the world. He said, I'll take you home. Yeah. And he's, he was the sweetest man. He took me home. And as we got uh, near to our house, he said, is there a pub nearby? And I said, yeah, there is actually, Alan, just up the road here. He said, well, I think we'll go in there and have a quick drink before I take you back to your wife. And he poured two double scotches into me. I turned up in this pub, absolutely black. I mean, I was black from all this soot and stuff in my uniform. I don't know what the people in the pub thought as this apparition appeared. And Alan Sybil poured these two double scotches into me, which didn't even touch the sides, and then delivered me home. And um, I subsequently discovered he didn't live anywhere near me at all, bless him. He'd driven miles out of his way to do this. A marvellous chat. But what we didn't realise, and there's always, I suppose, humour even in the blackest things, we didn't realise that this number two engine had actually fallen off. Hmm? And it had fallen off into a gravel pit. And there was a far, it was Easter time, it was Easter holidays, and there was this father and the son and his son at the gravel pit fishing, and suddenly there was this enormous splash, and they thought, goodness me, this is the biggest fish we've ever caught. And that was the engine going splash into the gravel wow. pit. Wow. And I remember one of the tabloids had something along the lines, Captain Courageous jettisons flaming engine into gravel pit. As though there's a jettison handle up yes. there on the flight deck. Oh, I'm fed up with this engine. I think I'll get rid of it, pull the lever, and off it goes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, good. quite extraordinary. Right. And the tragedy of the whole thing was that, and again, we didn't realize this immediately at all, but we had lost four passengers all at the tail end of the airplane and one very, very brave stewardess yeah. called Barbara Harrison who was awarded a posthumous George Cross for her courage. Mm -hmm. She could have jumped out of that rare exit. There wasn't a slide there, but she could have jumped out. And she didn't. She went back into the airplane and tried to get these four passengers out.
Wow. I'll tell you, the stories that, uh, that he's got to tell are amazing. You know, when you, when you listen to these, and obviously we're moving on more onto the commercial side of things now, obviously from the military and that, so we're yeah. hearing more about his um, commercial flying days. But what an incident to be, you know, yeah. part of. And um, I can I can still remember the um, the pictures online and stuff of this. This was a, a lot of years ago, a lot of years ago. But um, mm. yeah, you, you know, one of one of my favorite takeaways from having embarked on this podcast journey with you guys is the ability to talk to some of these pilots, just like Nick is uh, talking to to John. And mm. we know when I got a chance at Oshkosh this year to interview Tammy Joe Schultz and yeah. you see the interviews with Al Haynes who passed away last year. And the, I love learning and I hope everybody that listens to the show takes away something mm. when they listen to these things about the, the procedural manner in which they dissect their experiences afterwards and even years afterwards. And I, I'm always just incredibly impressed by their professionalism, but their sort of calm reflection of what is otherwise an incredibly emotional event. Mm. That's probably the, the coolest thing about this podcast thing. Yeah, it's, I, we, well, I mean, we've, we, we said at our, our 300. We've been we, blessed. We've been so lucky, yeah. really. Yeah. And, and, I, and I do think, and, and I know Nick was very humble at uh, the 300th, wasn't he? Because we were sort of wanted to thank him for his input. But, uh, you know, I think part of the success of this particular series is uh, almost down to, to Nick's questioning as well. Because yeah. uh, the thing is, is what, what you have to sort of take... I mean, if Carlos or I have been sat there, you wouldn't have got that same sort of... You know, it's the gravitas that, that Captain Nick brings, isn't it, mm, to, to yeah. something like that? Because he knows what he's talking about, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just brilliant. It's... Uh, it's I'm really enjoying it. I'm, and I, th I think we're sort of more or less about halfway through now, aren't we? Um, yeah, I think we're halfway through. Yeah. There's still more to come, so don't yeah, panic. Definitely. There's still more to come. Yeah, really can't wait. So we're going to hand things over to Armando to introduce the next part of the show. Yeah, thanks, Carlos. We've got a few military stories uh, this week, and we'll go through them pretty quick. Um, yeah, if you guys are ready, let's do it. Let's yeah, do it. Let's do it, yeah. Yeah, so most listeners of this show by now will have heard that uh, there was a C-130 uh, firefighter aircraft yes. that crashed in Australia. Um, so thank you for our Australian contingent and uh, the airstig there in the chat room who uh, provided a little bit of amplifying data on this, uh, this mishap. And um, kind of what we were talking about in the chat room was the conditions that that day were a bit challenging he, you know he mentioned that it was the winds were 30 gusting 40 with uh, dust low clouds showers and on top of that there's obviously the smoke from the fires themselves and it was a, a pretty rugged uh, mountainous terrain area where this mishap took place but uh, i'll take a moment just to read a, a quick article from the air force times um, focusing more on the three individuals that lost their lives mm -hmm. 
So a, a pilot from the Montana Air National Guard was one of three American firefighters killed when a Canadian firefighting company's C-130 crashed Wednesday while battling the wildfires raging across Australia. The American branch of Colson Aviation, which is based in British Columbia, said in a, in a release that Ian Macbeth was one of three crew members killed when one of its Lockheed C-130 tankers crashed in the snowy Monaro area of New South Wales. The C-130 had just dropped a load of more than 4,000 gallons of fire retardant on a fire before it went down, uh, investigators said on Friday. Macbeth, uh, 44, of Great Falls, Montana, was the captain of the C-130, with the other crew members being First Officer Paul Hudson from Buckeye, Arizona, and Flight Engineer Rick DeMorgan from Navarre, Florida. Uh, DeMorgan was also an 18-year veteran of the Air Force as a flight engineer on C-130s. And I'll pause there to uh, add that we've talked about it so often how close of a community this is. And uh, he was a flight engineer on AC-130 gunships. So many of my friends from Air Force Special Operations Command uh, knew him. He was a very well-respected flight engineer on both the AC-130H gunship and the AC-130U gunship. Um, so we'll continue on. Hudson graduated from the uh, Naval Academy in 1999. He served 20 years in the Marine Corps, including time as a C-130 pilot, also retiring as a highly decorated lieutenant colonel. Uh, the Montana Air National Guard uh, earlier on Thursday confirmed that Macbeth was part of the 120th Airlift Wing in Great Falls. Uh, Colson said Macbeth was an experienced pilot who spent his entire flying career on C-130s. He was also with the Wyoming Air National Guard before flying with, Mon with the Montana Guard. He is survived by his wife, uh, Bodie, and his three children, Abigail, Calvin, and Ella, as well as his parents and siblings. Ian's love for his wife and children were, was evident for anyone who spent time around him. Ian was highly qualified and respected C-130 pilot with many years fight, fighting fires, both in the military and with Colson Aviation. Uh, Rick DeMorgan, the flight engineer, had more than 4,000 hours as a flight engineer on the C-130, including 2,000 in combat. He is survived by his two children, Lucas and Logan, his parents, and his sister. Rick's passion was always flying and his children, according to Colson. Uh, Paul Hudson is survived by his wife, Noreen. Uh, Colson pledged support to the fallen aviators' families. They said in a statement, at Colson Aviation, we have the incredible job of fighting fires around the world, and we take pride in this responsibility. Right now, our hearts are with the crew's families and friends in our Colson family suffering in the loss of these three remarkable and well-respected crew members. The aviation industry and emergency service sector is a small community both in Australia and around the world, and this will be deeply felt by all. Australia's rural, rural fire service said Thursday the C-130 had crashed near Kuma, uh, south of the Australian capital of Canberra, according to a, uh, a report. All three crew members were U.S. residents. Uh, we simply lost contact with the aircraft and the flight tracker we used stopped. There was no indication at this stage of what caused the incident. 
Uh, Fitzsimmons said, or a spokesman said there was a large fireball at the crash site. Uh, specialist investigators were sent to the crash site and a team was working uh, to recover the victims. Uh, he described the difficult process of securing evidence of the crash and the victims remain since the wildfire is still burning and potential hazards such as aviation fuel are present. Uh, upward of 500 firefighting aircraft from several countries are fighting Australia's wildfires. Uh, this spokesman said, so if there are lessons to be learned from this particular accident, it is very important that not only Australia learn these, but the world learns them. The loss of three Americans brings the death toll from the blazes in Australia to at least 31 since September. The fires have also destroyed more than 2,600 homes and raised more than 10.4 million hectares or 25 million acres, an area bigger than the U.S. state of Indiana. Uh, Colson grounded other firefighting equipment, uh, aircraft as a precaution, um, as well as a sign of respect. So there we go. Uh, you know, as is usual in aviation, uh, these incidents often hit uh, pretty close to home. And uh, that all being said, you know, I was, I was having a, a chat with Ray Davis yeah. um, about how this is, this is the life of service. And yeah. all three of these gentlemen were, they were knew, they, perfect examples. Yeah, they, they knew what the, they knew the risks involved. And of course, the one thing that this does highlight, I mean, I, I guess we can all be a little bit sort of blase about the effects and, and flight, uh, the, the smoke uh, and the effects it can have on, on flight. But of course, this is a, a sort of a, an example, really, of, of how dangerous missions like this can actually be. I mean, it, it's, or it's, um, it is tragic, really, isn't it? But, uh, at the end of the day, they, you know, I, I, you know, they were doing what, what they were trained to do. I guess and probably a job they loved as well. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And absolutely. I, and I have yeah, no right. doubt that those guys wouldn't wanted to have been anywhere else. Um, obviously, it's awful um, that uh, things perhaps didn't go according to plan. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. Well, thoughts go out to uh, everybody. Um, you know who who knows them? I think really, isn't it? It's uh, these. It's always so tragic. Yeah, and uh, Carlos, if you wouldn't mind moving on to the next story, it is also a commemorative story, but this one is actually yeah. a, a positive one. Yeah, this one is the commemorative Air Force. Uh, this is on the WarbirdsNews.com. Uh, CAF commemorative Air Force preparing for Arsenal of Democracy Flyover 2020. So for those of you. Uh, in the U.S. who love your photography. This will be one to catch. Nearly five years ago now, in May 2015, uh, we celebrated the end of the Second World War with a massive fly-past of Washington, D.C., which featured dozens of vintage World War II military aircraft. Dubbed the Arsenal of Democracy Flyover, the operation was a huge success, so much that, so that the plans are now well underway for a similar effort for the 75th anniversary in the coming year. The commemorative Air Force will be a major part of this and made the following press release this week describing which of their fleet's aircraft are currently scheduled to participate. Of course, be covering the extraordinary event uh, on the uh, page, on the, well, on the Warbirds news page uh, again this time. So the Arsenal of Democracy Flyover to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe will take place on May the 8th, 2020. The Arsenal of Democracy program is a massive undertaking led by several organisations including the Commemorative Air Force, the CAF, 
Uh, a full week of events and programs will occur in and around the nation's capital, with the highlight being the flyover coinciding with a ceremony for veterans at the National War, uh, Second World War Memorial. Around 100 US and Allied World War II aircraft will fly overhead in 24 separate historically sequenced warbird formations. The formations will represent the, world, the war's major battles from the Battle of Britain through the final air assault on Japan and conclude with a missing man formation. Numerous organizations and individuals will participate in the various activities. So given the list here on the website, uh, Matt will obviously put the show notes in so you can look on this yourself, but there is a huge list. We've got uh, the likes of uh, the B-25 uh, from the Devil Dog Squadron. Uh, we've also got uh, a, an SBD Dauntless from Dixie Wing. Uh, the FM-2 Wildcat. There's a B-24 Diamond Lil uh, from Dallas. The P-51 Tuskegee Airmen, the Red Tail Squadron aircraft. They'll be flying a B-17 Texas Raiders uh, from the Gulf Coast Wing. Uh, there's also, uh, let me scroll down here, there's uh, B-29 Fifi, the B-29 Fifi will be flying in there, plus a load of other aircraft. There are so many aircraft there flying in that formation. It's safe to say, Armando, I think for anyone who uh, likes their, um, especially warbird photography, this will be an event to go to for sure. I think Jonathan Warner should uh, book flights for this event. <laughs> I think he should. Not, not only... Are you watching these amazing aircraft, but you're sitting on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., so you're surrounded by the Capitol, the White House, all of the museums, all of the government buildings, the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Monument, and you're sitting there taking it all in on a beautiful spring day, and there's formations of World War II aircraft passing over you, so uh, get on it, John. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about the no, wife. No Book the flights. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 You're clearly fearless. Anyway, moving on uh, to the next story. And this is on the aviationist.com. Uh, and the headline is US Navy now jamming GPS over six states and 125,000 square miles. That's nice of them. Absolutely. So the FAA issues advisory for pilots, large military GPS jamming exercise in the southeast. So the US Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, has issued a flight advisory for January the, 20, uh, the 16th to the 24th, warning civilian and commercial pilots that GPS oh, should have finished your day then. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, the GPS testing is scheduled as follows and may result in unreliable or unavailable GPS signal. The notice is issued under the authority of the U.S. Navy Carrier Strike Group 4. Uh, the GPS jamming by U.S. Navy Carrier Strike Group 4 from Naval Station, Norfolk, Virginia, is in support of a large training exercise currently taking place off the U.S. East Coast. Uh, the good news for most people in the American Southeast is that the vast GPS jamming exercise is unlikely dis to disrupt civilian and commercial ground-based GPS such as automobile navigation and fitness users. <laughs> it is probable that some commercial and civilian air and sea traffic GPS systems will be heavily impacted by the ongoing carrier strike group 4 GPS denial exercise. Warren Morningstar the uh, avia the aircraft owners and pilots association uh, live uh, executive producer said in an internet broadcast 
on uh, January the 14th, 2020, that, well, here we go again. The United States military could be upsetting your navigation <laughs> with GPS jamming, Morningstar went on to say. If you find that jamming is causing a safety of flight issue, you can tell air traffic control, stop buzzer, ATC, will tell the military to knock it off. <laughs> That's uh, that's essentially the gist of that. So, I mean, f forgive my naivety here, um, Armando. I mean, what what is what is behind um, uh, said exercise? I mean, what what are they hoping to achieve by by this exercise? Well, GPS now in military operations as well as commercial aviation is so prevalent that um, one has to practice in a GPS denied environment. So like anything else, it's a GPS is a machine. It's a system of machines of satellites. Uh, and we need to be able to both practice and prove our systems in an environment where that GPS is not available. So you may be talking about uh, going back to some older techniques. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, older navigation techniques, most of our weapons now are GPS or many of our weapons are GPS guided. So how do you employ those weapons without uh, GPS guidance? And I don't think it's quite as simple as just, well, why don't you just turn the GPS receiver off? Um, because there will most likely be different levels of interference where we need to figure out uh, how different levels of intent integrity in GPS affect some of our weapon systems as well as our own techniques. Um, in addition to what's going off on just off the coast there in Jacksonville, Florida, I believe there's more interference scheduling uh, interference testing scheduled for Fort Hood, Texas, Yuma, Arizona, Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So anybody that's out there flying that listens to the show, uh, if you're in commercial aviation, they should be briefing you on this. If you're in general aviation, make sure you're checking the NOTAMs, make sure you're checking uh, your, your flight planning resources, flight service, whatever it is, to um, to see how that is going to affect your your flight and be sure you have a, a secondary plan. Mm -hmm. I, I know they put in there the cease, cease buzzer. Um, I'm not sure how it would go over if somebody in a Piper uh, Comanche we're flying off the coast of Florida because they didn't read their notums or something <laughs> like that and say cease buzzer and stop a military exercise. So yeah, yeah that's unlikely to happen. I guess. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, I guess they wouldn't, they wouldn't say cease buzzer if they hadn't no, read this, no, the, the note. Cause they, they wouldn't know about it to be fair. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, uh, breaking news. The helicopter at Everett airport has taken off. Oh, brilliant. Way. Not the triple seven. Not the triple seven. That's still, that's, uh. that is still sat on the ground with a very wobbly camera uh, sort of waiting. Some to really together. bad cameras. The, the helicopter there. has taken off everyone. That is the, that looks like about the only exciting thing we're going to be able to bring you from this live feed. I have to say, Armando, that, that, in, that inclement weather looks like perfect flying weather. Yeah. It may be, to be fair, where it's ended up that is the issue not necessarily where they're taking off in their defense yeah you never i have no idea what their what their test plan is but the weather up there in seattle is always very similar to to europe oh right oh in that case horrendous excellent real quick main uh, main yeah. man micah in the chat room asked are there are two other satellite navigation systems in orbit can the military gps systems or any of the general aviation systems tune into those other transmitters um 
so I'm not, I'm going to have to get back to you on Micah, uh, on that Micah, because I'm not entirely sure that they operate on the same frequencies. Um, I know there are, there are separate, um, satellite systems and constellations. I'm going to have to dig in a little bit to, uh, probably Garmin being the, the most common systems out there, um, on whether or not a general aviation GPS system can tie into a GLONASS or something, something like that, whatever. There's the European and Russian system, I think, too. Uh, sorry, Richard Adams said, it, I think, because we were commenting, actually, because we, we were watching the feed here. We, yeah, <laughs> I could say we were watching the feed here in the studio while um, while uh, 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 Captain Nick's interview was going on. And uh, he, he was sat there with his engine running the whole time. Yeah. As I say, Richard Adams has said, probably gone for, the hell he's probably gone for fuel, fuel. which kind of makes sense. Uh, <laughs> there we go. So coming up next on the show, then, we have got uh, another interview installment from the Dubai Air Show. This uh, this particular interview uh, was me behind the camera. and uh, I beg your pardon. I know, me you behind the camera. You were allowed to touch the... Wow. It was my camera. What? Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Yes, yes, oh, yeah. Good old Canon. And uh, in this interview, Nick... Uh, sorry, Nick. Uh, Nev, I should say. He got me tacked on Nick now. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> so uh, in this particular interview, Nev is going to be talking to Sasha from uh, Frequentis about digital tower systems. Well, I'm with uh, Sasha at Frequentis. Uh, welcome, Sasha. Thanks very much indeed for, for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, this is really interesting technology that you're uh, showing us today. Um, so this is all about uh, a digital tower environment, isn't it, really? Yes. So what would you say are the key benefits to a remote digital tower compared to a, a regular building, for example? Yeah, so um, on first hand, we are um, reproducing the out-of-the-window view for the controller because that's what he's used to, that's what we want to represent at the first time. Uh, but then we add on all the information we have. There are thousands of information bits available on an airport and we are getting them into the picture, exactly that information, what we need. It can be an aircraft call sign, it can be flight information, can be uh, detected objects, cars, animals and so on. So, uh, getting all that together and increasing the situation, the con uh, awareness of the controller, that's one of the main benefits here. Mm. Now, what's interesting for me is how easy is it for a regular tower ATCO uh, to familiarize themselves with this sort of environment? That's a difficult question because there is not, let's say, one fit all solution for uh, digital towers. Uh, so, it's a process between uh, the um, service provider and us as frequenters to uh, find a solution which is suitable to fulfill their needs at the airport. And then I think the transfer is not so difficult. It's more the technology which is used. So it's similar to getting a new, let's say, voice communication system. You need to know as an air traffic controller how to handle it. But what is our main um, aim? We do not want to change the flight procedures. Uh, we adapt our system to the existing procedures at the airport. So how much additional training do you think is needed for, for these personnel? Um, that's as well similar to the first answer. It's it's very um, dependent on how many systems you change. For example, our Pantel and Zoom cameras, which replace the conventional binoculars. You need to know how to handle them. You need to know how to steer them, how to track a target, how to, let's say, um, stick them to a secondary radar information, for example. But at all, it's 
um, a training which is required to know the technical habits, but it's not rocket science, to be honest. We, and we have our German NSP, actually, where we are working closely together with the DFS. They are using our system and we can consult others with their knowledge and their experience they made with training controllers. Yeah, now of course we always hear about ATCO high workload. Yes. You know, this is a big thing. Um, do, would you say that this system can reduce that workload potentially? Uh, potentially, yes, um, if you use the tools right. So let's say, of course, all this information out of a sudden available um, on the screen can be overwhelming. So you need to have them, let's say, digested in the right way at the right position, but yes, it does. For example, you get the wind in the formation there where you need it. When you give a takeoff clearance to an aircraft or a landing clearance, and you do not have to look at your working position to your wind speed indicator to isolated systems, so everything is integrated here. And that together can reduce the workload of the control. And do you think that the resolution and frame rate is good enough now with the technology that you have? Uh, to replace the, the traditional tower environment? Yes, so um, as you know, I was working as an air traffic controller for many years on an ATC tower. Uh, even for us wearing glasses, the human eye is pretty good and uh, our engineers spend uh, a lot of effort uh, selecting the right cameras um, with the best resolution uh, to get the best uh, picture. Um, it's a combination of cameras, of monitors, um, the frame rate is uh, an average of 25 to 30 frames per second. Good enough, yeah. um, exactly, and that's yeah. what we are used to. We don't want to have a jittering picture. We are used that everything is fluent, and that's exactly what we are going to represent, or what we are doing actually, in, with the remote tower, with the digital. So we always hear about uh, system redundancy and backup. What sort of uh, redundancies does your system have? in the event of a partial system failure? Yeah. So partial system failure, the system is redundant in itself. There is no single point of failure in the system. Um, everything is connected, redundant, from camera to servers to the working position. Uh, if a camera fails, for example, um, we only use a little part of the complete uh, panorama of the screen. So air traffic management is still able to handle the traffic. We have panel zoom cameras, which can take over this part for the duration we need, the mechanics need, the engineers need to replace a camera. Um, from the um, network perspective, um, in Germany, for example, we have a dual uh, network, um, even geographically separated in the country. So if something happens, if someone is coming with the digger, drilling a hole, something, we have a redundant line, um, which is dedicated for the services. Um, and if really something major happens, whatever, the mass collapses, then the um, already applied uh, safety measures kick in. Um, whatever you would do today as well on a conventional tower, for example, this catches fire. So clear the airspace, um, get adjacent units, etc. Et yeah, very interesting. Um, so you've got, um, the other thing I was going to ask you is, um, the, the current hot topic again is, is cyber attacks and you know external interference. Obviously, I'm sure you've thought about all of that, um, and you probably can't go into too much detail about it either. Yes. But I was uh, assuming that you've got um, uh, contingencies available for that kind of situation yes. as well. Of course, it's it's similar to what I mentioned already with the networks. Yeah. Uh, so we have a built-in monitoring tool, um, which is in. Uh, the, the main intention is to check the um, latency, for example, 
uh, we are aiming on a latency of about half a second. So the controller gets an information when this latency is exceeded. So there are other monitoring tools which are as well making sure that the signal is exactly that signal what is captured at the airport, sent via the um, network to the center. So there are certain measurements in place. Yes, cyber attack is a very difficult topic here and um, we have that with many sensors in the ATC world. We are working with many radar antennas which are connected to centers, similar as happening with cameras. So um, there are some tools in place um, to make that available, but it's, there is no 100% solution yet. Um, now, you've got um, fixed and mobile versions of, of, of these systems. How, how do they differ? Um, actually, uh, our system itself, so the um, Frequentist Digital Tower, is not a solution which comes out of the box and is always the same, let's say, in size and uh, design. Uh, so the, um, the basic components are the same and the brain of the system is definitely the same. Um, it might differ from the variety of cameras and the size of the working position. So we have customers on a fixed basis with huge video walls. We have customers in Germany, for example, with five screens. And the mobile version will might be have only two screens, like you see here, depending very much on the size our customers have, container so solutions. Sort of configurable on a project-by-project yes, project exactly. basis. But that's yeah. one of the main changes, that you might have a smaller working position. And um, you might, for example, uh, have different uh, camera solutions where you say, I do not need necessarily 360 degree, I'm focusing on a certain area, I'm um, adapting the system to my needs in the field. That's exactly where we're going to, because I'm pretty sure that the demand for, uh, let's say, uh, an international airport is different from a uh, mobile ATC unit from yeah. the Air Force. Yes. That's, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So what are the differences between the civil and military use for, for Digital Tower? Yeah, so the, the main difference is, of course, is driven by the motivation why they are using that. One is more, let's say, driven on the economic side and being more efficient. And on the military side, especially with the mobile one, is to keep the controllers out of harm's way. Um, bringing them in the control center, let's say in a container, in a protected base, and having only the sensors next to the runway, which then, of course, is uh, much safer for the controllers, especially when you are anywhere in a war zone. Um, coming back to the civil side, it's more, the, they have the contingency cases, um, you have, of course, the remote, the obvious one to control an airport from a different location. Uh, but as well, and this is very important for the big airports, uh, the possibility to enhance the vision with certain smaller panoramas where you might have a blind spot uh, because it's blocking by a terminal. There are some construction work, so something what we do in Argentina, for example. That's uh, yeah. Well, this is uh, very impressive, I must say, uh, Sasha, it's fantastic. We always hear the, the current problems with drones and, and this kind of thing. How is a digital tower system able to handle that sort of situation? Yeah, so with our digital uh, tower solution, uh, we have a so-called object detection um, included in the system. So uh, it's a um, software-based um, detection of the video screen. So we are analyzing that and we are able to highlight for example, a drone, an aircraft, a car, whatsoever. Um, and you can see on the video here, so the, um, the object itself is detected, but it's not let differentiated. But the first thing is now we know where it is exactly. We can use our zooming camera and can zoom it in because in the distance it can be a small aircraft, it can be a bird. So then we have the information and the controller can do respectively. At least we can inform the aircraft to go around. So we increase again here the situation awareness and the safety, flight safety here. Um, 
what else is then done with the information, if it's the police, if it's the military police, whoever is taking care of that, it's a different story. But that's the first thing we are going in, we are detecting the objects, which is as well used for a safety net, for example, where we can use it for preventing runway incursions and so on. So um, It's quite interesting because when people first hear about digital tower technology, they go, well, I'm not really sure that's going to work because there's, the guys aren't really in the tower. But actually, from what you've just said, this actually enhances yes. flight safety and aerodrome safety yes. tremendously. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. it's um, beside that, of course, it's the more beneficial to the ETCOs because not every airport is Dubai or... Um, whatever, Frankfurt. Yeah. Uh, there are many airports in the world where you have highly trained controllers waiting for 20 movements a day and you can concentrate that it's a benefit for um, uh, centralized maintenance. We know that all from ACCs, this is well established around the world and now we're doing that with ATC towers. Yeah. So Sasha, what, what are we seeing here on the yeah. screen? Yeah, so what you see here is actually an installation we had in northern Germany at the military airbase. Um, this was for test purposes uh, because when you have military customers they ask questions regarding what do you do with high-speed aircraft and so on. So we invested um, some effort to go there to test our equipment. Are we able uh, to high-speed um, overflights? Yes, we can. We did more than 400 knots and that's actually not an issue. Uh, and you see it here uh, on a military airbase um, as well for night um, testing because it's by intent of the airbase. It's not so much lighted than a civil airport, for example. So that's what we see here, and uh, so we're doing a lot of uh, testing before we go to our customers. And, yeah, as you know, we have now United States, DOD, and Brazil Air Force as well with uh, our installations. Yeah, that's, that's really important to get, yes. to get those sort of high-end yes. applications. Yes, so, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fantastic, Sasha. Thank you very much indeed for talking Thank to you. us today. Thank you. really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely fascinating. That was so Ab good. And yeah. I, I'll tell you what, the graphics on the screen yeah. when, when he was doing that, and I was watching, obviously, Nev doing his bit, but yeah, watching yeah. the graphics on the screen, they were so high res. You, and it you was weren't all... watching Nev at all when well, you were no, watching. Well, no, I was just yes, like the a man in front of a computer oh, game, yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and he had that whole touchscreen thing, which was really yeah. awesome as well. No, but yeah. thanks to Frequentus and Sasha for... Uh, yeah for talking to us on the show. I'm sure you all enjoyed that. It was great. Very Thank much, you. yes. Very much so. Yeah, we need to start wrapping up. We we're, do, but we we're, have... We're over time. We have, we're over time. We're over the two-hour limit. Yeah. Do, 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 I, know, do. I know, absolutely. But what happens? Do I, do I spontaneously combust? You do. Yeah, he yeah, disappeared. He's disappeared yeah. now. He's gone. Look, <laughs> look, I'm poking him. Look, I'm punching him and everything. He's not there. Uh, so we have had... Your tablets are beginning to kick I in. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to wear off. I don't know about oh, kicking. Right, okay. Um, <laughs> so we have uh, had some audio feedback sent in to the show because we do love a bit actually of can we just feedback. go back to the ch uh, the the chat room very quickly oh, yes I know, um, yes go on go, uh, armando go. you had uh, you, you had an update for micah didn't you yeah the update is i'm going to look into it but oh. on a cursory oh. 14 <laughs> well on a 14 minute quick research uh it appears that ikeo has mandated that things are cross-functional between uh gps galileo and glonus which are the three major uh, gps systems but that is a it's a great technical question that I will take for homework over the week and hopefully report back uh, next week. Uncle Micah has given you your homework for the week, uh, and that's it. In other news, before we go to our, our marvelous feedback, have you turned into a uh, pumpkin yet? Uh, yeah, no, I yes, I, I will apparently. Chris Briggs said you will. Will I? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's probably right. To be fair, in other news, uh, the it, it's the triple seven X has <laughs> not moved. <laughs> it's still somewhere. Uh, um, apparently, we've... someone's uh, just gone down to the Walmart to buy some uh, speed tape. Right. Okay. Good. 
Yeah. Lovely. Excellent. The helicopter hasn't come back, I know. No, he's, no, uh, he's, he's probably he, got bored. He, he put he diesel in rather than... DD, um, yeah. right. So he was clearly very yeah. foolish. Uh, anyway, back to... What, <laughs> back what to the got. show. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. uh, we love to have listener feedback sent in to us at the show, and uh, we'll give you the details at the end of the show mm. where to send your listener feedback. But we have had some listener feedback sent in from Nick Codling. So uh, Nick Codling will hand the show over to you. Hello PTUK, this is Nick Codling down in Devon near Exeter. Uh, a b- very belated congratulations on your 300th episode. Uh, I feel deeply disappointed with myself for not having attended the big do at the Renaissance. Uh, I must admit, I thoroughly enjoyed the occasional noise of aircraft in the background um, and having visited the nearby uh, plane spotting uh, area. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a part of Heathrow I know quite well. Uh, I use the excuse of taking my son there to go and watch the planes, but really it's because I want to go. Um, anyway, uh, I shall make it uh, a New Year's resolution for this year to try and make it along to another PTUK gathering. Um, a huge thank you to Captain Nick for the. Uh, excellent series, uh, ably assisted by Nev, of course, uh, interviewing uh, Captain Hutchinson. Um, I I was actually inspired to, to buy his book, and being uh, of a uh, fiscally challenged, shall we say, individual, uh, I decided uh, that Amazon offered me the opportunity to buy a new copy or a used copy, so I thought... I shall buy a used copy, and very glad I am too. Uh, Having received it in the mail, it was in good condition. Uh, I opened it up and out fell a beautiful British Airways bookmark with the Concorde on it. And to my absolute delight, when I opened the front cover, I discovered that Captain Hutchinson had actually signed my copy. So uh, that has now become a a rather prized possession. one that uh, I've enjoyed reading. Anyway, thank you again for all the hard work that you guys put into the podcast. I enjoy it tremendously. Uh, and uh, it really is always something I'm very pleased to see drop into my uh, podcast feed. And uh, I look forward to meeting up with you all at some point in the future. Thank you again. All the very best. Oh, thanks, oh, thanks, thanks Nick. Nick. How cool is that to have <laughs> to not only to sort of think, oh, I'll, I'll risk it and I'll get one from Amazon, like yeah. you know the used thing, to find <laughs> it signed by John and then a BA bookmark fall out of it. That's a that's that's a strike of gold. That is. I'm going to go and order an, a, a book off Amazon. A yeah, used no, you one. aren't that lucky. No. <laughs> you aren't that lucky. Mate. That's it. There's no two ways. No, thanks that, for that, Nick. That's yeah. very nice of you to send that in. Thanks. Yeah, for your, absolutely. Uh, for your uh, actually, on on the mention of meetups, we're actually. Uh, uh, breaking news, Armando. We're going to be having a production meeting in the next week or so. Uh, so uh, let, we let are, us yeah. know your schedule. Uh, well, when Nev gets back, basically, yeah. then we're going to have it. But one of the things we do want to set up is a summer 
flying at Duxford again, which is, which was very very successful. So uh, uh, we'll hopefully have the date sorted out for the for you in the next few yeah, weeks. Uh, we certainly will, because uh, uh, we you know if we if we tell people in sort of early February, then everybody stands a good chance, chance of being yeah. able to get there, yeah. don't they? So yeah, because our meetup at Duxford was good, wasn't it? Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we're probably th- we're going to try and do a meetup at Duxford again. I think Nick. So uh, uh, we'll let you know. Uh, we'll let you know as soon yeah. as we've made it. Anyway, we need to wrap up. We do we? need to wrap up. And uh, poor, poor Armando needs to I go know, and get changed because he, he literally like landed and then sort of like plugged in to join into the show. The guy's not had a chance for a coffee or anything yet. He, re- he finished. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the one who says to me. So don't forget, guys and girls, if you want to contact the show, send us in your voice feedback. You can send them into our WhatsApp a number. Weird arm in my sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yes. Matt, what is the WhatsApp number? Yeah. So if you want to send your messages into us via whatsapp you can do audio and video as well via whatsapp uh, mr warner sends all sorts of horrendous things to me via that so enjoy those now that carla's in charge of that uh, it is the number is plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one double six that's plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one double six uh email podcast at plain talking uk.com that is podcast at plain talking uk.com website is www.plaintalkinguk.com and if you want to find us on social media that's twitter instagram facebook all of those search for the handle plain talking uk all as one word and matt has given me full access to the pduk yes. whatsapp account right. now my, my apologies everyone <laughs> good luck <laughs> uh, anyway so uh well just a quick wrap up before we go, Matt. Any plans this week? What are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, work. Sounds good. Armando, what are you doing? Well, I'd like to thank Matt for being the pilot advocate. It is a very rough life. Thank you for standing up for me. <laughs> um, Quite exactly. M- much like Matt, I've got a couple of days off after here, and then back to work up in the East Coast. Oh, okay. thanks you for joining us as always, yeah, Armando, absolutely. and thanks to everyone who has joined us in the YouTube room this evening thanks to everyone who's taken time out your fridays and a big thanks as well to everyone who downloads the show each week as an audio show hopefully nev will be back with us next week fingers Mm. crossed um and we'll see everybody very soon have a good weekend everyone everyone. see you later Bye. 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 Bye.